are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. These aren't just clothes. It's like what you make it. And that's part of your style. And although you're not going to get the latest trends that are happening, these items aren't a part of that category. You can still make it your own. It's how you define yourself in any way, whether it's the clothes you wear, what you say, what you want to do in life. It's how you define it and what, how you share that with other people. Welcome to Conscious Chatter, where what we wear matters. I'm Kestrel Jenkins, your host and in-house conscious fashion freak. This episode is brought to you by 1010. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly and sustainably sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a set of 10 uniquely beautiful diamond rings, and they're available now exclusively at BlueNile.com. This exciting collection of truly unique, Limited edition diamond engagement rings is available now, only at BlueNile.com. Now, let's get to the show. There's a lot of talk about the resale market and how quickly it's growing at the moment and moving into coming years. But to be clear, that's the big players talking this talk. And it's no doubt inspiring a lot of them to figure out how they're going to scramble to get their piece of this resale market pie. This week's guest comes from a different angle. She's the founder of a small vintage shop And she got into vintage from a young age, inspired by secondhand shopping with her grandma. She's built her brand because she loves vintage and putting together badass looks. I love that she's also dedicated to reminding people to be conscious of their consumption. As she says on their site, it's all about style or self over fashion or conformity. 
Chanel Harris is the owner of Nello, a curated thrift brand that is non-binary to any form of fashion and promotes positive self-love with sustainable clothing through artistic expression. Chanel, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Kestro. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so many things to talk about, and I'm so excited to kind of dive more into Nello and what you're doing with the brand. But before we get into all of that, can you kind of take us back and I guess share a little bit of your past story and what's really led you to have this interest in vintage and sustainability and fashion? Yeah. So I've grown up, you know, around my grandmother going thrifting and her taking me to different yard sales, different stores in Wisconsin and Milwaukee. So I grew up just, you know, that was just what I did. It was just an instinct to just go with my grandmother or ask her, like, can we go shopping in other people's yards? I want to go here or there. So secondhand stores, vintage clothing, it was just what I was attracted to. Even in my teen years, when everyone started going to the malls, I was like, that stuff is cool, but like, I want to go thrifting. So mm-hmm. it sort of just stuck with me. And then I started to learn things from my grandmother, like which days to go on, what stores had the best items and how to look at the different tickets. So from there, I just started to, you know, mainly shop at vintage stores. And then I also had jobs in retail. So that sort of combined with me learning the background and the business side of just the clothing industry itself. But that was mainly a hobby. Even like through college, I would still go thrifting and I would get compliments on my clothes. Like, where'd you get this or that? And it became sort of overwhelming because thrift clothes, you can buy a lot for, you know, a little amount of money. But then it's like, what am I, I can't wear all of these things. So it became a point where I was like, I need to do something about this. So after graduating college and actually graduating with my master's and going through like a transformational phase in my life of, you know, a lot of people after they graduate, like, what am I going to do? Like, I have a psychology degree. I'm looking for a job, but things aren't working out. And I had to realize, like, what do you like to do? What do you love? And I just put that all into creating Nello. And it just went on from there. Um, That was in April of 2019. So since then, it's just been a combination of, you know, everything that I've known and loved and finally doing it and taking the knowledge that I learned from growing up and being around vintage and picking out items and styling it and sharing it with customers now and whoever likes Nello. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. It reminds me of when I was growing up in Wisconsin. I did a lot of thrifting, I feel like, in high school and then beyond that. And I'm trying to think back, but I feel like it wasn't something that a lot of people were doing at the time. And I'm mm-hmm. like 35 now. But when you were growing up in Wisconsin, was it something that you saw around you? Was it something that was something that people were doing a lot of time or like what was what was thrifting like what was that the scene like I guess at that time yeah I guess yeah it wasn't popular at all I guess maybe in high school there were you know a few other kids that went and you know I actually like introduced a lot of my friends to going 
thrifting. Like they would get excited, like, oh, let's go here or, you know, this new place. But it wasn't something that they really grew up doing. So that's when I realized, like, oh, this is different. Like the things that I'm finding, I just think is, you know, just clothes. But everyone else, they're used to like going to the mall or a department store. So, yeah, I'd say like in Wisconsin, it, it's still like even the fashion scene in general, it's not as big as another major city like New York. So like thrifting wasn't even I don't I don't believe it was as popular at the time mm-hmm. as big as it is now. Definitely not. Yeah, totally. Totally. I remember going to Goodwill a lot was one of the places I would go. Mm-hmm. And there was like one tiny vintage shop that was in Winona, Minnesota, like across the Mississippi River from where I grew up. But yeah, are there some of the stores you remember going to? Were they smaller? Were they like bigger chain stores? Like, it sounds like you did a lot of this with your grandma, which is so cool. But yeah, like what were some of the places that you remember? Yeah, so in Milwaukee, there's a chain of thrift stores. They're called Value Village. And they actually, I didn't realize it until I moved down to Georgia that there's also the same chain down here. But yeah, Value Village was like my go-to with my grandmother. There's like three different locations. Also like St. Vincent, DePaul, there's a few of those. And Goodwill's, I don't know, she, like, well, I I would realize too, you know, like Goodwill's are on the expensive end of things. And also I just learned that Goodwill's, They'll have some vintage items, but it's mainly a lot of, you know, like current items that people are just, that's the first place they think of going to, to donate items. It's Goodwill, Goodwill. So a lot of those things that are in there are newer items. Mm -hmm. So usually when we did go thrifting, it was like maybe the Goodwill is along the way or we'll just stop in there. But usually it would be these other thrift stores that my grandmother would just know about that were in smaller areas and smaller chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So it sounds like Nello was like, you said you kind of went through a little bit of a like transformation post-college, which by the way, you said you graduated with a master's. What did you actually study? Yeah, so I studied health psychology, clinical health psychology. Um, actually, I went to school in London. So that was, I forgot about that. Like, I went to London for about two years and then I completed my master's. And that also, like, opened my eye up to other types of vintage and high quality vintage, especially in London. I feel like they put a big value on vintage compared mm-hmm. to America. There will be shops that, things that I, I wouldn't pay for, like a t shirt that is, like, I don't know, way overpriced compared to what you can find it in the store here for but it was really cool to see the different styles too in London and over in Europe and then like taking that information back here and like oh I can do that here too you know Mm -hmm. I can create Nello in a way that's you know a combination of both I love that yeah I I actually lived in London for six months for an internship and you're like telling this story and I'm just thinking about how powerful the style was for me there just being on the streets there I felt like I don't know it seems like you could wear whatever you want like anyone could wear whatever they want and no one would like look at you and like stare at you whereas I feel like I grew up in a smaller town in Wisconsin and and then I lived in Minneapolis but I felt like if you did things that were like quote-unquote different you would be mm-hmm. looked at, whereas there, I just, I just loved how it felt like everyone could do whatever the heck they want, 
and exactly. it was just like cool that's a cool outfit there it goes <laughs> right yeah I would just like just get it on the tube I would just study people's style I would just sit there like oh okay they have their their socks this color today you know just look at but yeah I agree like it was de- it's definitely a different type of like creative freedom and expression over there that's not here in a lot of places like you said in Wisconsin or just or just like even going outside taking pictures and not <laughs> being afraid of someone saying hey what are you doing like <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to take pictures you know <laughs> <laughs> I love that yeah oh I love what you said about like studying people's style on the on the tube like I was definitely that doing that same thing just like the details and I feel like I got I got a lot more creative or I guess free with my creativity while I was there just allowed me to just kind of experiment more I felt like it was easier to do that or it was like more of a conducive environment to do that exactly (laughs) I love it so you studied psychology, which is really interesting, I think, considering that I think that plays into fashion or dressing a lot. So when it comes to Nello, like what was the what were the steps you took after school and deciding that, wait a second, I'm going to build my own vintage store? Right. So it was probably a lot going on then. <laughs> um, well, first of all, coming up with the name Nello. So my name is Chanel. And my nickname is Nell. Like my family members, friends, they all just call me Nell. And then the low part of Nello represents like the lotus flower and like that transformational phase that I went through when I came up with finally feeling confident enough to move forward and start my own brand and start Nello. So I just tried to make sure that whatever I was going to do with Nello, it had like a meaning that my intentions were right behind it. Because if it, if it wasn't, then I didn't feel right doing it. And there was a lot of things that I had to change, especially with the way I wanted things to look and how I styled things. Because I started out with taking pictures of my products in the garage and the lighting was just horrible. So, you know, I would edit things and try to make them look better. And until so finally, like one day I was like, I'm going to the kitchen. So I just started taking pictures in the kitchen because there was like better lighting up there. And like, that's what I've been using now. I'm actually in my kitchen against the wall on the orange background. And since then, I felt that things started to look consistent and I started to feel better about putting out more products. And since then, I feel like things have just started to become easier. And then also going to find items, you know, I love thrifting. So it wasn't, that's not a problem. Like, I don't feel like, oh, I have to go thrifting today. I'm not like dreading it. It's finding that balance of, okay, you have this much stuff. You don't need to go get any more, you know, work with these things. Yeah. And from there, it's just like staying, staying consistent. That's what I've learned also taking the breaks that I need to because because I love doing it so much it's easy to just keep going but I have to you know slow down and I guess yeah I mean starting it there were like ups and downs with second guessing myself and overanalyzing how I should put things out but it's really just just keep doing it just stay consistent and just keep doing it that's what I learned and those who like it will like it those who don't they won't but you know if I'm doing it for me and I know I am then you know that's the main thing 
Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. And when it comes to kind of like your tagline or your motto, I guess, I'm not sure how you would like what you would call it. But when I was reading on your website, you say that you, quote, inspire consumers to embrace style or self over fashion or conformity. And I really, really love this kind of approach and the way that you've put that together. So I guess, can you talk a little more about how you came up with that or like this idea of style or self over fashion or conformity and what that really means to you? Right. So yeah, so when I started the brand, there were things that I felt like I wanted to express to the customers that these aren't just clothes it's like what you make it and that's part of your style and although you're not going to get the latest trends that are happening these items aren't a part of that category you can still make it your own it's how you define yourself in any way whether it's the clothes you wear what you say what you want to do in life it's how you define it and what how you share that with other people mm-hmm so yeah, so like define labels being you. Like it's not about the label, it's about how you are in the clothes. And in doing that, I feel like it takes a lot of pressure and expectations off of whoever's buying the item to believe that because I'm wearing this, it means this or that. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. Not because of the company, the brand, the designer, but because you're wearing it. And a lot of those items that are designers and they end up in the thrift stores. So it's like, yeah, it was popular at one point, but what makes this item valuable now? Mm-hmm. Is it because it's in the store on the rack or is it because you're wearing it? So yeah, so I'll stop behind that. It could be some psychology in there. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> definitely, definitely. I was thinking about how, you know, we now exist in this world that's, very much overlaps with social media. I think it's impossible to ignore that. You know, it's like I discovered you on Instagram. But how do you feel like that plays into things? Because I think you're kind of like resisting what I think a lot of Instagram does to us nowadays, where like we're told like this person's wearing this, so we should wear that. Or, you know, this person's wearing that, so why aren't you wearing that? And like this idea of outfit repeating, I think there there's starting to be trends where people are discussing like the cool ways that you can reuse pieces and wear them more times. But I think there's also still kind of like this idea that, oh, well, I can't post a picture of myself wearing the same thing that I wore last week, you know, and that kind of thing. So I guess, right. like, how do you feel like you resist that while like being in that space at the same time? I guess for myself, it's it's like the way that I do style the clothes or put things together. I'm never saying this has to go with this item. You know, I'm showing the buyer there's different ways that you can wear a different piece. This episode is brought to you by 1010. Now, you may have read about this in the New York Times, InStyle Magazine, or Forbes, and I'm excited to tell you about it. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. 
Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring. They're available now exclusively on BlueNile.com. And when they're gone, they're gone. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It's a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's been beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. If you're on the hunt for the perfect, unique ring to wear forever, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings just launched and you can find it exclusively at BlueNile.com. Now, let's get back to the show. But it sounds like you're not dictating like you have to wear it this way in the way you're approaching things. But I think like just by having a vintage shop like you're already resisting that consumeristic nature of of Instagram or how that's kind of playing into the platform I guess yeah I guess it's still I mean it still falls into like the category of like I'm selling something but again it's not the trend it's not what fashion magazines are telling you to wear so I guess in that way it's it's going against what Instagram and how they want their users to interact with the app. At the same time, I feel like there is a maybe a small movement of creators who are trying to push against the algorithm and creating things that are different outside of the norms. And like, hopefully, that push is going. We're going to start to see a lot more content on Instagram that isn't everything's a Kim K copycat. Or everyone follow this look. Yeah, totally. I feel like some influencers that I follow, I mean, several of them, I guess, seem like they're resisting that. And they're trying to do their own thing. They're like mixing secondhand with new things a lot. And they're re-wearing stuff. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's like a smaller movement. But I definitely feel like that shift. And maybe I live inside a little bit of a bubble <laughs> because okay. of who I follow. <laughs> but I do feel like some of that, which is fun to see because I think for a long time that wasn't something as visible. And I think like I feel like we're we're seeing like a pendulum shift, or at least I hope so. Yeah. And I guess it's harder for me to like sort of recognize that shift or the patterns that happen on Instagram because like I just don't follow those a lot of the trends and I don't know I've never been that person to have to have the latest brand or wear this or that so maybe I have a little bubble too but it's like the opposite (laughs) like I just you know that is pretty unique that I feel like from an early age you were kind of resisting those whatever quote-unquote mainstream trends and doing your own thing and and really playing with with secondhand and vintage I read an article that you were interviewed for in the past where you said that that you're really inspired by previous generations and I was curious like what do you feel like instilled that in you or what was it that got you inspired by past generation style I would say just like growing up and being around my family and also with entertainment, especially being black in America and having different entertainment 
influences from singers, actors, actresses, and just those creatives back then that expressed themselves openly in whatever way, even like musicians and just looking at, you know, musicians from the 70s and just seeing their their style, like 70s, 80s, and just seeing like how expressive they were back then. And also just like culturally just seeing the changes that people make with their clothing. It's just interesting to me. And just to see what's in and what's not in, but seeing where that influence come, comes from. And just knowing that, you know, I can be a part of that with sustainable fashion, vintage fashion. And also just making something out of nothing, like just going to the thrift store and like putting a whole outfit together. Like maybe it's $5, but you wearing it is like someone notices it, not because of the price or the brand, but because the way you styled it and who you are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the past influences, like even like in my family, like a lot of people, you'll you'll get compliments like, oh, that's sharp or, you know, that's bad or, or something, you know, just to like show that you look nice. So I guess just like being around my family and culture, culturally, it's just really influenced me to know that like I can I can do this. I can create what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is beautiful. <laughs> well, when it comes to your style, like which, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but your style is like so incredible and so amazing. I love seeing how you put together outfits and like compositions like like you mentioned you know studying the whole all the details of outfits on the tube in London like I feel like I love going through Instagram and following people like you and like studying all the details and how you went through the process of like putting these different pieces together and I guess that's some of the psychology of it too for me that's so intriguing is like what was it that made somebody put this with this and like how do they come up with that but for you do you like to put together outfits that are like within the same era or do you like overlapping eras is it a mixture of both what do you, what would you say right. your approach is yeah i would say it's overlapping uh eras cuz up until up until recently i'll be honest like i wasn't really studying like what specific time period this piece might have been from like until I started Nello, like up in like when I was just thrifting for myself, it was just, oh, this looks cool. I'm just going to put it with this or put it with that. Mm-hmm. But now like I've started to, you know, like read on different time periods and the clothing and the details. So now I can, if I want to <laughs> put it together based off of a different era or, or not, but I usually just like to play with different items. Just, just, I don't know. It's just a look to me. I'll just say like, this looks like it'll go with that. Mm-hmm. But if someone asks me to style them based off of a period, then I would do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning more on, you know, what categories and what which category. And so that's helping. Like, I didn't realize how intricate it is being a vintage reseller and, you know, how much knowledge you should probably gain <laughs> when you come across these different pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But then at the same time, I feel like, the key is you have to have like that aesthetic or like that eye. And so I feel like that's the starting point in the, what's so important. Right. So yeah, yeah. I I just, I'll just make stuff. Honestly, (laughs) I'll just be like, Oh, that looks like it'll go with this. That'll go with that. And sometimes things that I don't even think looks, look that nice. Like people 
will be like, oh my God. I'm like, really? You guys like that? <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I wanted to, I guess, like take a step back a little bit and look at the sustainable fashion industry at large and I guess how secondhand or vintage fits into it because I feel like there's so much talk right now about the secondhand market and how it's growing faster than retail. Like ThreadUp, the reseller, their 2020 resale report said that resale is expected to grow five times over the next five years while retail is projected to shrink. And they also say in the report that the total secondhand market is projected to grow to almost twice the size of fast fashion by 2029. So I guess there's a lot of interest and talk right now about secondhand and resale in fashion. So from your perspective, working in kind of this vintage space, but I but I guess totally doing your own thing at the same time, what are your thoughts on where the secondhand market is going at this point in time? Yeah, well, I think it's great that, you know, more people are interested in secondhand fashion and highlighting it more give and you know showing people that you do have an option to save money help the environment and not feel pressured to always fit in with the trends and what's popular at the time so with the fashion industry also seeing that i think it's great and i just hope that people start to really do it for for those reasons and not just because it's you know expected to be in this high demand and so many years later. I mean, it's hard for me to really speak on the fashion industry itself, but you know, as long as creatives are like are in that industry and they actually love it and it keeps spreading, then that's great. I mean, I've been doing it just because I like to do it. And then it just so happens that it's also popular now to do or, you know, the industry also sees it as something that's needed. So, yeah, I do. I just see a lot of people like wanting to do like fashion shows and even recycling and designing with the thrift clothes, um, which is cool. It's like a new way to wear the the items. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of like different things going on around around it and like the industry at large is is talking about it and I think it's like bigger brands are now like even starting to think about how they can capitalize on this resale market because it's like something that people are interested in. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, like it looks like it's like eventually going to happen like even just going to like a mall or a department store. It's like they're kind of like depressing now. It's like what they're, they're like empty and like I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen with department stores and malls. Mm-hmm. But I can I can see a future with sustainable vintage stores like opening up and being as big as a department store or in malls. I know there there are places like that, but just even more. Yeah, totally. Well, I guess just to come from another angle because I know there's a lot of conversation or not a lot of conversation, but I guess I hear this in the peripheries of the industry, people talking about like the question of whether secondhand is ever unsustainable or if it's like feeding into a larger 
overproduction and overconsumption issues of fashion. And I know you had mentioned that earlier on that when you kind of got into wanting to build Nello, partly you had thrifted all these pieces and you were like, I don't need all of these things. Like, you know, what are other ways I can, I can kind of approach this. And I've gone through that myself at times where it was almost like earlier on. And when I started learning about like the issues of the fashion industry, I would think, okay, thrifting is the better option. So then I would go and like thrift all these things. And then I would be like, wait, I don't need these. Or this doesn't really <laughs> fit me that well. Or actually, I don't like this fabric. What was I thinking? I feel like it's it's been a journey for me to kind of like go through that process of realizing that I have to slow that consumption down too, I guess. So what do you think about the second-end market? Like, do you think that it can be unsustainable in any way or or I guess feedback into like the larger industry's issues. Yeah, I can see how, you know, it can feed back into the same issue. Like I said, it, it, it still comes down to like consumption. Like, do you need that? Do you really need it? But again, it's like, it's still funneling from the bigger industry because there's still so many fast fashion or just other, other products that, people are still donating and feeling like they should just give them away to these secondhand stores. So I, I think the bigger, the bigger problem is just consumption itself, even production on within the fashion industry. And like how, like how many items do we really need of this one product? I think it has to start there, but even someone deciding to go and, and buy secondhand, I believe is better um, even if you do donate it back to the to another store and things just keep getting recycled, I feel like it's within secondhand sh- uh, shopping, you're still recycling back and forth over coming from a larger company and it just gets funneled directly to the vintage stores. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the consumption piece is the most important part because items can stay in the store for, you know, how long no one will touch it but you know a department store mall fast fashion those things things change like every week you know something new Mm -hmm. so i mean we i don't know if we can we can stop everyone from going to you know mall i'm not saying i still shop at you know regular stores but it's at the rate that you think that you know you need something new Mm -hmm. or even just you know mixing and matching items yeah totally totally yeah, that that process of like really having to think about it before you buy something. Like, how can this fit in my wardrobe? Am I going to use this often? Do I really, really love it? Going through some of those kind of questions before making the purchase. Right. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of things, even besides clothes, you know, with cars, homes, like everything has is reused in some way, and you know, it's just easier to throw away clothes and get rid of clothes, you know? Hmm. So hopefully the whole world just realizes I'm good with this thing for enough time. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, I was thinking of your style, which I love following along and seeing your outfits on, on Instagram, but how would you, I guess, define your style? Do you, would you define it Hmm. or do you have like a few words you would use to describe it? I don't know. I feel like I never define it, but like other people will define it for me. I guess I, I like colors. Mm-hmm. 
I like prints. I like pants. <laughs> I used to like jeans, but I'm like not. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to stay away from jeans because, especially high waist jeans, because you know, sitting down and tightness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially right now in COVID. Right. Right now, like I like turtlenecks and. I picked up wearing like the high socks from being over in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know. I've never even done that to myself. I've never said, "Chanel, what's your style like?" Like, I don't even know how to describe it. I have a friend. They'll say like, "Oh, you like Diana Ross one day, and then like Solange another day." Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I just like I try to be comfortable, but like sometimes I like to get dressy and. I guess, like, if I had to pick a, like, period, like, a time era, maybe, like, the 70s, I, I would probably feel like I would fit into that a lot, like, a mixture of the 70s and 90s. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I always like seeing how people define their own style, because I think it is kind of, like, an obscure question, because if you're really into dressing, I think sometimes, you, I don't know, for me, it's just, like, what I feel like that day. You know, it's yeah. like I look in the closet, I'm like, oh, that's going to be fun today because I am in this sort of mood or something is drawing me to it. And then I kind of go down this route. So, yeah, I love I love that your friend observes you like being kind of like totally different looks on different days. I think that's really right. fun. Yeah, honestly, yeah, and some days I don't even want to dress up at all. <laughs> right that's real life isn't it <laughs> right <laughs> like why do we wear clothes sometimes I'm, some days I'm like can I just be naked <laughs> <laughs> I know it, and I love that and that's coming from a vintage store owner like that's amazing right. that's real life <laughs> yeah sometimes I'm just overclothed you never know you never know but you can choose you can choose you know <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it well, Chanel, I have one more question, and this is something that I ask all of my guests, and it has to do with our individual impact. And so if you think of us as everyday people, how do you think we can bring small changes into our everyday lives to help influence a better future for fashion? For fashion. You know, I try not to tell people what to do. <laughs> yeah, I totally appreciate um, that. I'm the same. Like, I really am conscious of not wanting to preach about yeah. things. But I guess if you were to suggest yeah. something maybe that you do or that that you think is helpful, it's everyone is different, obviously. Right. I would say just like finding something that you like to do and just like trusting yourself to do it. I don't know, I just, I just realized, like, we're just all living and then, you know, just happen to find something to do that you love while you're living. If that goes, funnels into the fashion industry, funnels into the psychology industry, <laughs> wherever. But, yeah, I just think that just doing that overall will just help the environment or us human people in general and your life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. It's like personal happiness funnels out into other areas yes yes that's beautiful I love that I love that well Chanel thank you so much for joining me I'm such a fan of your work and as I said I love your style so I look forward to continuing to see all the rad compositions that you create with vintage garments 
Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation. And yeah, I look forward to creating more. Next week, we're chatting with the designer and founder of a brand that deeply honors their artisan partners. They're known for the vibrant splashes of color that don their collections and the beautiful way they celebrate Indian crafting techniques that have been handed down for hundreds of years. Stay tuned. Cheers to all you change makers out there. Thanks for listening. aficionado, fashionista, foodie, sneakerhead. No matter what you're into, go all in. Because the greater the obsession, the greater the reward. Introducing the new Lexus IS, a result of Lexus's obsession. All in on the sport sedan. Learn more at Lexus.com slash IS. Enter the world of Tomorrow's Monsters, a scripted podcast starring John Boyega from Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and Emmy winner Darren Chris. In this sci-fi thriller, a shadowy corporation seeks to enhance human evolution by eliminating the need for sleep. First, a human without sleep. Then a human without fear. Then a human with perfect memory. Humankind 2.0. Listen to Tomorrow's Monsters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And this is the tech news episode for Thursday, January 21st, 2021. Let's get into it. One of the gadgets that got a lot of attention at CES 2021 was LG's rollable phone. And I've mentioned it on past episodes, but in brief, this is a phone that can extend its frame and grow to more of a tablet kind of size. And the screen rolls out to expand with the frame, kind of like a window shade being pulled down. It's all made possible by flexible OLED screens and circuitry, and that's pretty cool. We've seen similar technology with rollable televisions, for example. So it's too bad that LG might be getting out of the phone business entirely. Now, I should stress, this is something that might happen, but isn't guaranteed to happen. An internal memo in LG from the company's CEO had acknowledged that it's possible LG will need to extricate itself from making smartphones. This same CEO, Quan Bong-seok, assumed the role of CEO in 2020 with the promise that he would return the smartphone division to profitability by 2021. You see, LG's smartphone division has been seeing losses year over year for more than five years in a row, with the company pouring $5 billion worth of resources into the division. Quan's original plan was for the company to push phones with a real 
wow factor to them. I hate that term. But uh, one of those phones was one called the Velvet. That's pretty weird. It's a phone that actually has a case, and the case contains a second screen. So the case is a folding case. When it's closed, the screen of the smartphone is largely not visible. You can still take phone calls with the case closed, but you can't really interact with the smartphone. So you open up the case, kind of like a book, and that includes a second screen that's to the left of your phone's screen, and it increases the amount of touchscreen real estate that you have. That one is an odd one, but it doesn't really stand up to the oddness of the wing This is a smartphone that has a swivel screen mounted on top of a second screen. So I see you like screens on your screens. You can have one of them in landscape and one in portrait mode. So you you twist the top screen and it goes horizontal and the bottom screen stays vertical. And it kind of looks like you're holding an uppercase T in your hand. It allows you to do stuff like watch a video in landscape format, so widescreen format and maybe browse Twitter or, or look up information about the movie you're watching in portrait format beneath it. So it's like a dual screen phone, just in a very interesting orientation. Uh, or heck, the rollable phone is another great example of a phone that's supposed to be capturing this wow factor. But it might just be that LG cannot carve out a space in a very crowded marketplace with lots of other brands there. Samsung and Apple really dominate the high-end market for smartphones. Uh, Huawei has a pretty good lock on budget smartphones, and there are a few other companies that also have a decent share in that market. And LG just couldn't command enough market share for the division to be profitable. On a personal note, one of my first smartphones was the LG Nexus 5 Android phone. And I think it probably makes sense from LG's perspective to get out of a market that is pretty saturated and focus on other businesses that are probably more profitable. But as a consumer, I'm sad if LG does decide to get out of smartphones because it will also mean fewer options for people who are shopping for their next phone. More options tends to be better for your consumer, and seeing a big player getting out of the market can often lead to fewer choices and fewer innovations in the space. Let's hope that doesn't happen. We don't know if LG actually is going to withdraw from the smartphone business or if the leadership team, you know, does decide to do that, how that's going to affect the employees, or what the timeline might be. We do know that LG has pledged to find different positions for about 60% of those who will be affected, which sounds kind of ominous for the other 40%, but as some reporters have pointed out, there's a lot of functional knowledge stored in that group of employees, so LG might want to hold on to as many of them as they possibly can, and hopefully we won't see massive layoffs in the future. Earlier this week, the world learned about the people former President Trump pardoned in his last few days in office. One of those people is Anthony Lewandowski. Longtime listeners of Tech Stuff may have heard me talk about this guy before. He is an engineer, uh, one that even his harshest critics refer to as a brilliant engineer, who focuses primarily upon technologies related to self-driving cars. He was part of Google's self-driving car initiative, 
that would eventually evolve into Waymo. And while he was at Google, he had a bit of a reputation for some ethically questionable leadership decisions. He would leave Google to found his own company that centered on autonomous trucking, and Uber would acquire that company not too long afterward, bringing Lewandowski on board with Uber. Meanwhile, back at Google, company representatives suspected that Lewandowski had left Google with thousands of documents related to trade secrets and that he was potentially using those to build out Uber's own self-driving initiatives. Google pursued legal action. Uber fired Lewandowski because Uber was legally required to defend Lewandowski due to the employee agreement he had signed. And the Uber then claimed that they were unaware of the theft. And ultimately, Lewandowski would stand trial for the theft of trade secrets. He was found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in prison. Trump pardoned Lewandowski, who never spent a day in prison because his sentence had been indefinitely delayed due to the COVID outbreak. Oh, and something else I always want to add when I'm talking about Lewandowski, he's also the founder of a religion that worships a future AI. In other words, it's a religion that anticipates the creation of an artificial intelligence system advanced enough to be seen as a deity, and it's called Way to the Future. Anyway, I'm sure we have not heard the last of Lewandowski. This next story is an odd one because of all the irony in it. In fact, this episode's got quite a bit of irony. We will not have an irony deficiency. Okay, so let's see if I can get this straight. Google has placed one of its employees under investigation. That employee is Margaret Mitchell, not the author of Gone with the Wind, but rather a member of Google's team that is dedicated to ethics and artificial intelligence. Now, investigating an ethics specialist for wrongdoing certainly seems ironic, though the cynical among us might point out that the various ethics committees in political circles are, you know questionable, and we might make snide comments about those as well. But in this case, things get even more thorny. Mitchell is suspected to be involved with the copying and sharing of thousands of internal files that were sent to external accounts. Axios ran a report stating that Mitchell was using automated search functions to crawl through her messages and pull out any instances of communication involving the discriminatory treatment of another former Googler, Timnit Gebru. Gebru had worked with the AI team before she was fired. Gebru has claimed that she was fired after she criticized Google's lack of diversity and general failure to address diversity problems properly, something that Google executives say that's just not the case. That's not why we fired her. And so, at least at first glance, this appears to be a case where a Google employee concerned about the firing of a fellow Google employee began pulling evidence together to support the narrative that the fired employee was sacked in a discriminatory way. And now the company is investigating her for doing that. It's not exactly a good look for Google on the surface, though of course there could be a lot more going on here than what I'm aware of. Google employees continue to pressure the company to make some big changes, and the move to unionize is continuing as well. Is this another example of the company trying to lock down dissent, or is there justification for the firing of Gebru? I don't know, but I promise I will continue to follow up on this story. Good news for Netflix shareholders. The company announced this week that it had more than 200 million subscribers worldwide, 
and that it is bringing in enough revenue to cover the expenses of the original slate of films and TV series that it produces each year. Previously, Netflix had to take out loans to cover those kind of costs, which measures in the billions of dollars per year. The projections suggest Netflix will break even by the end of 2021. Shareholders might have share buybacks to look forward to, as the company has suggested it might use the cash on hand to purchase shares. The company also plans to maintain a significant amount of debt, like between 10 and $15 billion. So in other words, not using its profits to pay all that debt off. That is a heck of a credit card statement. The announcement jolted Netflix's stock value, which climbed more than 12% after the announcement. Meanwhile, here in Georgia, some municipalities are suing Netflix, along with Hulu and a couple of other streaming services, and this is in an effort to lump streaming services into the same sort of category as cable TV, something that is under more regulation than streaming services are. The law in question is the Georgia Consumer Choice for Television Act, which places a a requirement on video services, and it's a franchise fee that all video services like cable TV are supposed to pay to local governments within Georgia, uh, unless those services are part of a larger internet service bundle. This seemed to create a pretty big disparity. For example, the NBC streaming service Peacock Plus could be bundled with parent company Comcast's ISP services and thus escape the franchise fee that way. The same could happen with HBO Max and AT&T's ISP bundles. But Netflix, which isn't affiliated with an ISP, wouldn't have that opportunity. And since the law only exempts the bundles from franchise fees, Netflix would have to pay up, which would undoubtedly lead to higher subscription prices for viewers. On the flip side, the fees go to local governments and help fund various governmental functions and services, but companies like Netflix object to this, understandably, and they point out that streaming services are fundamentally different from cable TV services on multiple fronts. It's likely this will all have to be decided in court, and the outcome is far from guaranteed. As we've seen many times, it's hard to predict how courts will interpret laws when the case also involves technology that the court might not fully understand. Speaking of massive companies that generate tons of content, let's talk about Viacom CBS. For a while now, CBS All Access has been the go-to streaming source for stuff like new Star Trek properties. But soon, that service will sunset, and from the ashes of CBS All Access will rise the phoenix of Paramount+. Plus. Now, this isn't super new news. We knew this was coming back in 2020, but now we know the date of Paramount Plus's launch, March 4th here in the United States. That's also when Latin America will get the service. Australia will get it sometime in the middle of 2021, and Canada gets the name Paramount Plus on March 4th, but won't actually get all the Paramount content until some other time later in 2021, and I have not yet seen a date for that, so I'm sorry, Canadians. The news service will include not only all the CBS content that was previously on All Access, but also stuff from MTV, Comedy Central, VH1, and BET, among other channels. There will be new original content coming out on the streaming service beyond just, you know, the Star Trek stuff. 
There's a series that will be based on The Godfather, for example, and that could be pretty interesting. I'm actually a pretty big fan of the first two Godfather films. And the series Behind the Music from VH1 is going to make a comeback as well. I'm not certain how much the Paramount Plus service will cost yet. CBS All Access was $5.99 per month if you didn't mind having ads in your service. Or you could pay $9.99 for an ad-free subscription per month. But I assume Paramount Plus will probably be a little more expensive. But there's no announced pricing schedule at the time of this recording. Well, we've got more to talk about in tech news, but first let's take a quick break. So you've heard the buzz. Contact tracing and vaccines are the big new things to stopping COVID. But you still may be thinking, what is contact tracing? Are the vaccines safe? Who's behind all of this? And what's in it for me? You've got questions. We've got answers. That's why Contact World was created a brand new podcast with iHeartRadio where hosts tackle the hot-button issues surrounding coronavirus, contact tracing, public health, equity, fragility of healthcare systems, community-based care, and a whole lot more than just buzzwords. Join Justin Beck, Catherine Delson, and Deepti Pawa as they demystify contact tracing, arming you with the right facts, insights, and information to move forward and make your world safer, healthier, and more equitable. Not just during this pandemic, but... Whenever it ends, too. You deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood when it comes to public health. And you deserve the chance to be heard by the people who make the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Listen to in-depth discussions about real issues facing our world and how we can help solve them together. Contact World is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's C-O-N-T-A-K-T World. Hey, friends. So... There are bad matches out there, like microwaves and aluminum foil. Then there are great matches, like Cashback Match from Discover. Only Discover automatically matches all the cashback you earn at the end of your first year. There's no minimum spending or maximum rewards, just a dollar-for-dollar match. And you can redeem your Cashback Match for any amount at any time. Discover makes it easy— So what are you waiting for? Ditch those bad matches like magnets and phones, Scorpios and Geminis, orange juice and toothpaste. And check out Cashback Match from Discover, where they match all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year, dollar for dollar. Learn more about Cashback Match at discover.com slash match. Cashback Match only from Discover. Discover something brighter. One of the big tech news stories toward the last few months of 2020 was how the co-founder of the massive company Alibaba, Jack Ma, went missing, at least from the public eye. He gave a speech in October of 2020 that criticized government regulations just before an Alibaba affiliate company called Ant Group was scheduled to have its initial public offering. Side note here, I'm pretty sure that in the past I reported that it was Alibaba that was holding its IPO, which was my mistake. That was incorrect. Alibaba had already had its IPO long before. This was a financial affiliate company, Ant Group. Well, shortly after this critical speech, the Chinese government, 
specifically the regulators, blocked that IPO for Ant Group. And regulators have really tightened the screws on the tech sector in China in general, and Alibaba in particular. Jack Ma disappeared from view, and the rest of the world was left to speculate on what had happened to him. Was he laying low after seeing how the regulators had reacted? Was he actively being held and silenced by the Chinese government? All sorts of theories bounced around, although I think there was more of an agreement that the exile was likely self-imposed as a matter of preservation. But then Tianmu News, a government-operated newspaper, published an online piece that included a video of the billionaire giving a presentation to school teachers in a rural part of China as part of a philanthropic event. Ma himself is a former teacher, and he has dedicated a great deal of time and money towards supporting educational efforts in China. There was no acknowledgement that Ma had been absent from the spotlight for months, And considering the fact that the man has gained something of a reputation for some pretty flashy public displays, that in itself is pretty interesting. Alibaba, which has already become a publicly traded company as I mentioned, saw the value of its shares increase by 9% on the stock exchanges in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Clearly, Ma's absence has had a somewhat chilling effect on the tech sector in China, As for what happens next, I suspect we will continue to see companies push against the boundaries placed around them by the Chinese Communist Party, which tends to try and suffocate any entity that rises to challenge its power in China. Private space industry company SpaceX has a couple of new purchases, currently in the Gulf of Mexico. They are a pair of oil rigs, enormous structures designed to conduct deep water drilling And these two were rated for operations for up to a depth of 8,500 feet. Their dimensions measure 240 feet by 255 feet, or about 73 meters by 76 meters. SpaceX's plan is to convert these oil rigs into floating offshore spaceports. Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX, had previously said the company planned to build that kind of a facility in the near future, and the oil rigs appear to be the first step. It will take a lot of work to convert them into functional floating spaceports, but hey, the hardest part of the job is already done, because that's naming them. Am I right? The names of the two ports are Deimos and Phobos, you know, the the moons of Mars. It looks as though these rigs will become part of a truly massive operation in Texas that includes not just SpaceX facilities, but also that other big company that Musk is also involved with, that being Tesla. Texas has been a technological center for a while, but in recent months there's been more of a move to migrate the big tech companies over to Texas to take advantage of tax incentives and the like. I can't wait to see what these spaceports will look like once they are through with their makeovers. Wikipedia, the crowdsourced compendium of human knowledge, recently had its billionth edit in the month of January. You know, uh, for the English language of Wikipedia, I should add, because there are different versions of it. It was for an entry for an album released by experimental musician Alec Empire. Uh, It's called Death Breathing. But now, or at least as of the time when I was recording this episode, that entry actually now automatically forwards to just Alec Empire. So, you know, yeah, it was the billionth edit, but we're not going to be precious about it, which I honestly actually find really refreshing because... Ultimately, it's an arbitrary number when you think about it. But Wikipedia first launched back in 2001 and obviously has evolved a great deal since then. 
There have been various battles between groups of volunteers who edit the site. There have been changes in editorial policy, partly to reverse the trend of people vandalizing entries or posting unverified and sometimes unverifiable passages into different pages, particularly those that are part of emotionally charged debates, like political parties or social movements and that kind of thing. And because editors can update pages over time, a lot of academic and professional organizations, like my old employer, How Stuff Works, had a blanket policy that Wikipedia was never to be used as a referenced source. You could go to Wikipedia to look at the list of references for that article and then follow down those pathways, but the Wikipedia entries themselves were off-limits, mostly due to the fact that they could change in subtle or even not-so-subtle ways with no warning. So you might cite Wikipedia as a source, and then two weeks later, the information you were citing is no longer in that entry. That's not great. Now, I've been pretty hard on Wikipedia in the past, but I do recognize its usefulness. I just continue to suggest people dig further than the Wikipedia article when researching information. So, happy billionth edit, Wikipedia! Back in 2016, a company called MeWe, M-E-W-E, launched a new social networking platform, also called MeWe. And the sales pitch for this platform is that, unlike Facebook, MeWe does not have ads, nor does it use an algorithm to determine which posts you will or won't see. Everything will appear in a reverse chronological order on your feed, with the most recent posts of those you follow at the top of the feed and then descending by order from there. You know, the way stuff like Twitter and Facebook used to work. It also claims to be more focused on privacy. Since there are no ads, the service isn't monitoring your every action in order to sell that data off to advertisers. Instead, they have a subscription model. There's a premium level that users can elect to subscribe to, or they can use the free service that has fewer bells and whistles. Now, the reason I'm bringing up MeWe this week is that the site has seen a recent surge in folks signing up. 2.5 million new accounts were made in the last week. Now, by Facebook standards, that is nothing. Facebook has more than 2.5 billion active users, after all. But considering that back in October 2020, MeWe had 9 million users, a 2.5 million surge in a week is really significant. And here's something that I wasn't planning on. I'm actually one of those 2.5 million people. I somehow had missed hearing about MeWe for years, and then I just came across it by chance before I did this episode. Before I saw the article about how many people had signed up in the last week, I just thought, hey, this seems like it's more in my style than Facebook. I have one friend on there right now, and it happens to be my co-host for Large Nerdron Collider, Ariel Kasten. I quit Facebook several weeks ago, and while I don't have access to my friends like I did on the old FB, I do like the approach of MeWe. I just you know, wish my friends were there. And apparently, I'm not the only person that's going through this. As more people have become disenchanted with the advertising strategies of various platforms, or how algorithms can elevate misinformation campaigns and lead to radicalization, we may see more people abandon those older platforms for alternatives. Now, don't get me wrong, there are going to be plenty of people sharing misinformation on MeWe as well. But because there's no algorithm to serve that information up to new people, you as a user have to go out and seek 
the people or organizations that are creating the misinformation on your own. You have to follow them. It's not being served up to you on a platter, and that can make a huge difference, as we've already seen with the recent drop in misinformation campaigns online. Anyway, this isn't a commercial for MeWe. It's a social platform that most people aren't even using, but it has received some recent attention. So I'm not saying it's going to become the next big thing, but I do expect we're going to see a few social platforms try and position themselves as a more transparent and responsible alternative to the established networks we have out there. Whether they gain any traction or not remains to be seen, but we should remember that, you know, momentum and inertia are really powerful things. Back in 2020, the company Psycraft, C-Y-C-R-A-F-T, published a report revealing that Chinese hackers had been infiltrating high-tech systems in a project that the cybersecurity field has called Chimera. They were largely attacking Taiwanese tech companies at the time. Uh, And this type of attack was classified as an APT, or Advanced Persistent Threat, meaning the intrusions were meant to insert ways for the hackers to gain repeated access to systems and information, not just, you know, inject malware or something, but kind of a continual espionage sort of thing. More recently, the NCC Group and Fox IT have revealed that those intrusions have been more serious than earlier reports suggested, and include attacks on airlines and affiliated companies, presumably with the goal to scrape data from systems and keep track of persons of interest on behalf of the Chinese government. Which sounds pretty terrifying, right? The hackers were looking for PNRs, that stands for Passenger Name Records, And according to security analysts, the way the hackers gained entry into the systems typically relied upon earlier data breaches. So in some of those data breaches, login information was among the data that was compromised. So the hackers were using those leaked logins to try and gain access to various companies and systems. And then they branched out from there. They also relied on a penetration testing framework called Cobalt Strike. So in other words, the hackers were relying upon a tool that's usually used to train system administrators on how to detect and stop hacker intrusions. Hopefully, with the publication of these reports, the affected companies will be able to find and shut down hacker access to their systems. All right, let's go with some more irony, but we're going to stay on hackers. So there's a cybersecurity firm called Malwarebytes. This company recently revealed it had discovered an intrusion from the same hackers that infiltrated the company SolarWinds last year. And what's more, this wasn't connected to the SolarWinds attack, at least not directly. Now, you might remember that with SolarWinds, hackers injected malware into a product called Orion, and when SolarWinds pushed out updates for Orion to all customers that were relying upon that product, the malware hitched a ride and infected thousands upon thousands of systems, in companies, in government organizations, etc., With Malwarebytes, the intrusion came thanks to a dormant Office 365 security app. Another irony, right? That the vulnerability came through a security app. Office 365, by the way, is a product from Microsoft. Now, we know that thanks to SolarWinds, the hackers had gained access to many of Microsoft's internal systems. And there's a chance that that may have led to the hackers finding the opportunity to take advantage of this otherwise unused Office 365 tool over at Malwarebytes. 
As for the solar winds hack, analysts say we're still in the very early stages of just assessing the scope of that attack and the number of systems that have been compromised, which means we're still a long way from actually resolving any problems. Well, we have a few more stories to cover. Before we get to that, let's take another quick break. If you're an audiophile who knows the difference between bitrate and bit depth, you know Obsession. If you call yourself an aficionado, you probably know more about art than some artists do. And in the same way a metalhead knows every guitar solo to a classic power ballad, at Lexus, they're absolutely consumed with tuning every inch of a pure sport sedan. What is this fanatical behavior, you ask? It's called going all in. And the more all in you go, the better it gets. Which is why they went as far as building an entirely new test track for a new level of handling and responsiveness, and why they designed it with curves as sharp as the corners it can maneuver around. This is the result of Lexus's obsession, the new Lexus IS, all in on the sport sedan, proving once again the greater the obsession, the greater the reward. Learn more at Lexus.com slash IS. The P-Touch Pro label maker enables you to organize like a pro, creating durable labels that help you identify your electrical and telecom wires and cables, workspace, gear, and more. P-Touch Pro features convenient one-touch keys that make labeling fast and easy. Use over 300 symbols to help declutter your electrical wiring, your workshop, toolbox, garage, storage, and more. P-Touch Pro tackles hobbies, too, organizing your camping, hunting, fishing, and sporting gear. And it's easy to use wherever your projects take you, featuring a detachable wrist strap and portable design. Choose from an assortment of exceptionally durable Brother P-Touch label tapes for all your labeling needs. Tackle your toughest labeling jobs with the P-Touch Pro Label Maker, only from Brother. For details, visit ptouchprobybrother.com. On some online platforms, there is a strategy called shadow banning, and here's how it works. You got yourself a real ne'er-do-well on your platform. They're always stirring up trouble, causing strife, initiating flame wars, that kind of thing. Now, you could just ban this person, which would likely make your other users happy, but it would also be something that the banned user would immediately notice. And maybe that user just goes and creates a, a different account on your service and just keeps up with the same old garbage. Or maybe you shadow ban them. A shadow ban means that to the affected user, things seem normal. They can still access the service. They can still post to it. Only no one else on the service will actually see the stuff that this user posts. The messages just don't show up because the user has been shadow banned. A group of researchers wanted to test Twitter's claim that they don't use shadow banning in their moderation strategies. But some users' messages were not showing up for other people, and Twitter reps were saying that those instances were just examples of a bug. It was an unintended glitch. But the researchers wanted to investigate that claim, and through their analysis, they arrived at the conclusion that it is statistically unlikely that the invisible posts are only due to glitches, because the researchers found that the people who were affected by 
this shadow ban glitch, were likely to have other friends who similarly had the same problem, which suggests that rather than being random glitches, there is some sort of algorithm that's identifying accounts that the algorithm has decided are posting material that Twitter would rather not show up on its service. And then the algorithm starts to follow the path of who is this person following and who's following this person using the logic of, hey, if this one account is posting really hinky stuff, then I bet the accounts that it follows and the accounts that follow it are likewise doing that. So you wouldn't expect to see that kind of activity if this were just a random glitch. It would be very sporadic. They would be unconnected uh, you know, accounts for the most part. So that's what the researchers are saying. It's not definitive proof. It's just evidence that supports that there might be some shadow banning actually going on at Twitter, despite the company's protestations otherwise. Moving on, so NVIDIA released its Shield TV product way back in 2015. Now, this is a digital media player running on an Android operating system, and it can stream games from a compatible PC to a television. So if you're a PC gamer, but you would love to play certain titles on your big screen television, you can use the NVIDIA Shield TV to do that. And now you can use PS5 and Xbox Series X controllers with that system. NVIDIA recently added support for the new controllers to their product. The pairing process sounds like it's pretty simple, and the NVIDIA Shield TV product it can also upscale videos up to 4K resolution. That's not quite the same as running 4K natively, but it's still pretty darn nice. Now, I've never had the chance to play on an NVIDIA Shield TV, though I did once get a chance to play the original NVIDIA Shield Portable, before that was really an official thing. I think I was at a CES and it was just kind of secretly being shown off. And I was there in the last day of the show and the reps at the booth were like, yeah, sure, go ahead and play with it. Uh, I think it had largely been hands-off for most of the show, which tells you it pays to stick around at CES till the last day because people don't really care so much anymore for some reason. Sticking with games, several game publishers, including Valve, which these days is better known as the company behind the Steam store, are going to be coughing up some dough to pay fines in the EU. This comes after a nearly two-year-long legal battle, and at the heart of this issue is the practice of geoblocking. That is, the practice of blocking access to some games in some areas of the EU while allowing access to those games in other EU countries. See, the EU doesn't like that too much. The philosophy of the EU is one in which people, businesses, and services are free to move around within the Union as a whole. So having a service that's available in, say, France, but unavailable in Germany, is antithetical to the EU's philosophy. A competition law makes it illegal for companies to engage in cross-border sales across member nations in the EU. This isn't something unique to the video game industry. On a similar note, the EU wants services like streaming video companies to offer the same library of content across all members of the EU, treating it as a digital single market. And while there are complicated licensing agreements that come into play that make this harder to do, there's also the fact that within the EU... A citizen can choose to relocate to another member nation of the EU, and in that case you would think that the person should still have access to whatever digital media they had already purchased in their original country. The game publishers all had a reduced fine due to the fact that they were more cooperative with the EU's approach to creating regulations, 
Uh, Valve had to pay the whole fine because it had somewhat resisted those efforts and disagreed that they were guilty of violating a law. So Valve's fine amounted to 1.6 million euro, a princely sum. Oh, and hey, remember when in early 2020, Animal Crossing New Horizons swooped into the rescue for all those Nintendo Switch owners and helped us through the early days of isolation in the quarantine era? Well, how about you recapture that feeling of joy and community with a little makeup? ColourPop is releasing a collection of makeup inspired by the popular game, which, as I understand it, mostly involves hoarding turnips until the market reaches critical mass, whereupon you unload them in a frenzy, sort of like the movie Wall Street, but with cartoonish anthropomorphic animals. The collection launches on January 28th, and the images I've seen have all been palettes of, of various makeup powders in different colors, and each palette is citing a different citizen of the game as the source of inspiration, which, you know, is pretty adorable. I'm in favor of it. I don't, don't think I'll be wearing any of it. I can't pull off eyeshadow, guys. And finally, scientists with the University of Bath and the University of Oxford are now using images captured by satellites to look for and track the movement of animals from space. Animals like elephants. So the scientists say that the satellites offer up a new way to count elephants when paired with an algorithm that analyzes the images and looks for, you know, elephant shapes. But like teeny tiny elephant shapes, because these are satellite images. This is a much more efficient means of finding elephants than sending aircraft to just crisscross the skies in search of them. And it gives scientists a way to track elephant populations. The African elephant is considered a vulnerable species. There are somewhere between 40,000 and 50,000 African elephants in the wild. And the team hopes that this approach can be used to count and keep track of other types of animals in the future with, you know, tweaks to the algorithm. Though, I personally hope they never use it to count sheep, because otherwise the satellites might go into sleep mode. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, with that terrible dad joke, we're going to wrap up this episode of Tech Stuff News Edition. We will be back next week with more news. And in the meantime, if you have suggestions for topics I should tackle in normal episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a company in tech, a personality in tech, maybe just a trend in tech, let me know. The best way to reach out to me is on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are bad matches out there, like microwaves and aluminum foil. Then there are great matches, like Cashback Match from Discover. Only Discover automatically matches all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year, dollar for dollar. So what are you waiting for? Ditch those bad matches, like orange juice and toothpaste, and check out Cashback Match only from Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Discover something brighter. Control, flexibility, efficiency. How much better could you manage your cash flow if all your suppliers accepted credit cards? 
Well, now there is a way you can pay virtually anyone with your Visa business card, even if they don't accept cards at all. It's called Plastic. You go to P-L-A-S-T-I-Q dot com and pay with your card. Then Plastic sends the money via check, wire, or ACH. Start with just one bill and see for yourself how Plastic multiplies the power of your Visa business card. This week on the eBay for Business podcast. Essentially, it's not about you. It's about the customer. If you serve the customer and give them what they want, which is a good product at a fair price, you will be rewarded. What was challenging at first was when you're in the growth phase, when you're starting off that first year, you really don't have enough data to sort of compute what your real selling cost is. Am I going to move this inventory that I just bought in a year? I think it really took about two solid years to kind of get a rough idea of what my numbers were. The main expense is inventory, obviously. The other main expense is the selling cost. So I like to really keep those two in focus. And I know I have a number based on... I have to buy this much inventory every month or every quarter to sustain this monthly cash flow. So I know that if I wanted to stop this growth level right now, I have a number in mind that every month I need to spend this much on inventory. I'm Brian. And I'm Griff. And this is the eBay for Business podcast, your weekly source for the information and inspiration you need to start, run, and grow a business on the world's most powerful marketplace. And this is episode 127. Hello, Brian. Hello, Griff. Good to be back after a week off for me. Yeah. If people haven't figured it out yet, we stagger weeks. So it's every other week, it's either you or Rebecca. Yes. And I love both of you. Well, I hope so. But I think I, I'm going to up my game to make sure that our listeners really, really like me over Rebecca. And she knows I'm kidding. Why well, aim so low? You should get them to like you more than they like me. Oh, that would almost be impossible. No, I think it actually would be really easy, Brian. <laughs> no, you've got years of experience doing this. I'm still like a neophyte. Yeah, me too. Nice weather we're having. Well, you know, you say that and I was thinking about that because I'm looking outside and it's all blue sky, but I know there are other parts of this country and our, where our listeners are that it's brutal. We're going to talk about that in a minute, I think. It impacts shipping sometimes. It does. It impacts shipping. So we have some news for our sellers in the Northeast in a minute. You'll hear that. It's actually from last week, but I think it still bears repeating. And uh, we also have some news about, uh, well, eBay. The business. That's good. Yeah. So as you, you're kind of hitting at it, what's on the program for this week? Well, this week we have two sellers. First, we'll talk to Tim Chapman. He's an old friend of ours from the eBay radio days. He's known as Mr. Customer Service. And we're going to talk about, well, guess. Customer service. Correct. Specifically, how to plan our customer service's best practices in order to address worst case scenarios long before they happen. And then we're going to meet a seller from Florida who actually approached us and said, hey, he'd be interested in being on the podcast. His name is Alec Larson, and he runs an auto parts business in Florida. And we'll learn how he started his business, and specifically this week, how he manages and tracks his business inventory and sales. All this and more. First up, let's find out what's in the eBay news this week, Brian. We have two news items this week. First, eBay is extending seller protections to sellers impacted by extreme weather conditions in the Northeast. Yeah, it was blizzard time last week in New England. Brought back memories. Feet and feet of snow. Not just New England, but the entire Northeast U.S. 
If you're located in the impacted areas in the Northeast and are not able to ship your inventory, we recommend you communicate with your buyers to advise them of the situation and extend your handling time on your listings if you expect delays. Always a good practice. It is. And if your business is impacted, eBay will automatically protect your seller performance, including your late shipment rate, your valid tracking upload rate, item not received cases due to late delivery, as long as you've uploaded tracking and have a physical scan from the carrier before your case was opened. Yeah, that's good. And there's more on the seller news board, so you can read the entire post there. What else is in the news, Brian? Well, last week, eBay announced another strong business quarter for the last three months of 2020 with 18% GMV, or that's gross merchandise value growth, and unprecedented traffic levels. Growth exceeded all expectations in every area, including active buyers, new sellers, traffic, conversions, and sales. In fact, eBay recorded its biggest Cyber 5 in the United States, with one out of every 10 U.S. shoppers flooding the site seeking hard-to-find and sold-out items. Refurbished gifts emerged as top trend, with many products selling out completely. Jordan Sweetnam, eBay's Senior Vice President and General Manager of Marketplace Americas, added, Thank you for the incredible effort you put into your eBay businesses. The amazing variety you offered, unparalleled quality you supplied, and exceptional service you delivered made all the difference. Our sellers are great, aren't they? They are. And what a great way to start 2021. Let's keep that momentum going. Absolutely. So uh, lots to talk about in the next year that we're now into. Stay tuned to the podcast. There's a lot of new features that will be announced. I know that Harry Temkin's going to be on soon. Maybe even next week. I always like listening to Harry. I learn new stuff all the time. And it's not just about products that have been rolled out, but it's insights into some things that have been out for like a year. There'll be some other nugget of information I pick up. Yeah. And they're doing a back-end change of the platform that's used for reporting. So it's a brand new platform. And this will allow the team under Harry to build out an incredibly robust set of reports for eBay sellers to use for their business. The request has been out there for a long time. We love the reports. We wish we had more data. We wish they went back longer. We wish, we wish, we really need. And all of that's coming. So it's going to be an exciting year, even if you just look at stuff like in Seller Hub. That's fantastic. Our sellers are always asking for more info about their business. Yeah. And I'm dying to see the new listing flow. I know that uh, I'm supposed to be in it soon, Brian. You asked for my user ID so I could be added to the uh, pool, so to speak. And I'm dying to see that. I, I like to try these things out as soon as I can. Hopefully you'll be added. They're being very restrictive on who they're adding right now, but I'm sure you'll get in. I don't like to pull rank, but I have been here for a while. so. <laughs> exactly. So anything else? No, that's it. I, I think it's time to start the show. So I'll be back in a little bit to help with You Got Questions. Great. Thanks, Brian. In the meantime, we're going to meet with Tim Chapman. February is Renew Month, and one of the aspects of running a business that we should all renew every year is our commitment to providing the best possible customer service we can. Our guest today is somewhat familiar with the topic. In fact, he's known by his eBay user ID, Mr. Customer Service, Tim Chapman. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Uh, thank you for thank you for having me, Griff. I don't think we've spoken since eBay radio days. I almost said Griffin Lee right there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure she'd appreciate that. We'll have to get her to listen. I'll leave that in. Remind us how long you've been selling on eBay, Tim. I've been selling since June of 2001, coming up on 20 years. Wow. So pretty good. 
your user ID is Mr. Customer Service. Why that user ID? First of all, well, as you know, when, on the early days, uh, we got the good <laughs> user IDs. But mostly is so that people can remember me. I want my buyers to remember your name because, I mean, there's millions of sellers out there. And they go, they buy something. Well, they have to go look it up. So, oh, I know that guy, Mr. Customer Service. It's easy to remember. And in a word, it tells what I'm all about. I'm about customer service. Yeah. That's me. So I know you said the early days you could get those good user IDs. It's still possible, but you might have to get really creative. And I think that's our first tip. You let us right into it. I wasn't thinking about this, but if you've got a user ID that's a combination of letters and numbers, you might want to consider getting something a little bit more memorable. Yeah, it's hard to type and it's hard to remember and it's obscure type of thing. But the early days, there were some good ones out there. So I got this one and I have a number two at the end and a T-O-O at the end. So I have my other names as well. And in case you need them, but you specialize selling on Mr. Dot Customer Service. That's correct. Yeah. MR Dot Customer Service. And you can just Google, you know, this name if you're out there, you can just Google the name and it'll jump you right to the eBay store. And I'll put a link to your eBay store in the transcript for those people who are interested. And they should be because, well, you're kind of an expert on this. You specialize in it. It's a passion. What are the more common customer service mistakes you've seen on eBay? Ones that sellers make quite frequently. Yeah, Griff, on this one, I think you're going for specifics. But if it's okay, I'm going to go for a little bit of an umbrella point of view on this one. Sure. Yes, please. So essentially... It's not about you. It's about the customer. If you serve the customer and give them what they want, which is a good product at a fair price, you will be rewarded. It reminds me of a famous quote by Zig Ziglar. I'm, I'm big on these quotes and stuff. And he was one of the best salesmen of all time. And the quote goes like this. You can have everything in life you want if you will just help enough other people get what they want. And it goes with eBay. It's it's sell a lot of stuff. You're going to make a lot of money. Serve the customer. And that's what it's about. We didn't want to get right into specifics, but there's been an incident or a situation for the last few months that's put a lot of sellers on edge. And it is, well, they're carrier delays. You know, lots of sellers and by ex extension, their buyers have been impacted by these carrier delays that mostly USPS experienced during the last months of this year and even through last month of January. Were you one of those sellers, by the way? Yeah, absolutely. I had several items go lost. In the early days, USPS, we could rely on them. Absolutely. If it's going to be there in two or three days, it's going to be there in two or three days. But what happens, COVID came and they've become totally overwhelmed. And they're not doing this on purpose. They're doing the best they can. Of course. But I've had several items go lost. And fortunate enough, a few of the buyers have, hey, this thing finally came after two and a half weeks. And they'll send me the refund I sent them. They'll reverse it and get it back to me. But um, on the priority mail packages, you can make a claim. And if it arrives, it arrives, you know, type of thing. But yeah, we just do what we can. So I've definitely been been hit with that one. Did you file any claims, by the way? Yeah, I filed, I think, three or four priority mail claims because it has automatic $100 insurance on the priority mail. But on the first class, I took a hit on a bunch of those. But it's part of business. It's not going to help to get mad. Don't take it personal. It's just part of business and, and, and timing right now. So for the most part, I'm saying 97, 98%, everything is going through fine still. Oh, good. And I still use USPS all the time, except for my real big stuff. 
What do you use for the big stuff? Well, the good thing now, uh, UPS and FedEx are competing with each other with all the eBay sellers and they work together. And so between both of those on FedEx and UPS, you could do it on eBay and they're competing with each other and the prices have gone down. And for big stuff, even big stuff that goes through the post office, you might want to look at FedEx or UPS because it could be cheaper than priority mail. So thank you, eBay, for that one. Well, we try. Uh, (laughs) Now, I I know it's not about me, but when I think about customer service, I I tend to divide customer service practices into two groups, reactive and proactive. So for example, there are reactive practices a seller can use for situations like long carrier delays, like a buyer contacts you and says, hey, my parcel's not here yet. Those are kind of reactive to a buyer's query or complaint. And these are important, of course, but I've always stressed the importance of proactive practices. Do you think of it this way? And if so, what are some of the ways you think of proactive customer service practices? Yeah, for me, proactive, I think you might be leaning towards, you know, if you know an item is going to be late, contact the customer. And perhaps I generally don't do that once it's out of my hands. Uh, Honestly, I don't have time. But if you know something's going to happen, yeah, go ahead and contact the customer. But to me, The real proactive customer service is to take and have exceptional images and very clearly pointing out any fault in the item uh, that the item may have in the images and the description and the condition. And I very often will even put it in the title. I'll put with issue in the title so the people know there's an issue and make sure to read it. Because a lot of people on their phones and stuff, they go, oh, I didn't see that this was a problem. And they're not lying. They just bought it on their phone and they didn't read everything. We know that the customers, they don't read very much. We know that. eBay knows that and they've told us that. So that's why I'll put in parentheses with issue in the title and it makes them read it. It doesn't mean that they don't want it. We don't want to hide anything. That's bad customer service. You don't want to hide it and you don't want it to get there and they say, hey, what's this? Surprise. Then you don't want that to happen. You want it to be as smooth as possible. The whole experience. Often, if there's room, I'll definitely put it in the title with issue, it has an issue. I also like to think about worst case scenarios and how I'm going to handle them before they actually happen. That's what I mean for me about proactive. So what's the worst that can happen with this parcel? And am I ready to deal with that? And how am I going to deal with it? Not that I'm anticipating it would happen, but if something does happen, I've already thought through how I'm going to react and hopefully I'll react calmly, professionally, like a a good seller focusing on the customer. Yeah, you know, this one, especially with new sellers, and you and I know this, that new sellers, they have a tendency to take everything personal. Oh my goodness. Way too often people get upset about it. They lose sleep. It's not worth any of that. If it's really fragile, go ahead and put insurance on it. If it's priority mail, it's got $100 insurance anyways, but pack it really well. And I don't worry about this stuff. You know, do whatever you can. Do the best you can on your end. That's all that you can do. You can't do any better than your best. I wouldn't worry about it. Just do your best. Tim, you know, on the podcast, just like on the old eBay radio, we love tips. We especially love them when they're in order. Uh, So I'm going to ask you something. I think we asked you a few years back. Tim, what are your top three to five tips for sellers when it comes to (laughs) reconsidering and renewing and recommitting to their customer service for 2021? Really, the big one, put yourself in the customer's shoes. What does the customer really want? The customer wants a good product at a fair price. And that's what eBay is about especially if it's used, which most of our stuff is. Well, I'm an everything seller, so most of my stuff is used. So they want a good price. We'll give it to them. 
and you're going to have a happy customer. Pack your items really well. Make the experience good when they open up the box. Uh, don't put it in a pizza box. <laughs> I had a friend who got who got something on eBay, and it came in a box. It was a uh, a Pampers box. Oh my god! Reused. Now it wasn't that it was unhygienic, but of course the message it sends is a little disconcerting. Yeah. If you have to use another box, turn it inside out. Just cut the box open, turn it inside out. Then you have brown on the outside, and it doesn't look so bad. And I do that often, but I don't use Pampers box. I love the idea of reuse, but you know, there's just a point yeah, where you make yourself look bad. You know? Yeah, ship on time. Do what you say you're going to do. It's not about you. It's about the customer. If you take care of the customer, everything else is going to work out. You will get a raise if you want to have a raise. If you're not happy with what you're making now, find a way to serve the customer better and sell more items and you'll have your rate. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you taking time to tell us about all these things. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Tim Chapman sells on eBay under the user ID, Mr. Customer Service. Look for a link to his eBay store in the transcript for episode 127. Our guest this week, he's a very interesting seller with a great story to tell. Join me in welcoming eBay seller Alec Larson. Hi, Alec. Hey, Griff. Hey, everybody. Sort of nervous, but uh, at the same time excited to finally get to share some seemingly cool eBay story with you guys. It's okay to be a little nervous. I think that keeps us on our toes, but I think you're going to be fine. I think so, and I, I am an introvert too, so I'll try to break out of my shell. How did you get started selling on eBay, Alec? Yeah, so at the time, this would be probably mid-2016, I was a musician at Disney. We were in a boy band, and we would play four nights a week. It was great. The other good thing about that is I had the entire day to pursue entrepreneurial projects, and that was a huge benefit to have that extra time. And I knew, you know, at some point, the musician thing couldn't last forever. I was in my mid-20s. I'd always had the entrepreneurial bug. I was at the time living in a very, very cheap apartment. It was not nice at all, but very cheap. And my goal was to save capital. I wanted to save up for some sort of endeavor. I knew I had to, to do something. It was either going to be real estate or maybe some opportunity that would come up. So I was sort of savvy with WordPress, and I was building websites for local businesses to save money. That was my vehicle to sort of amass some sort of capital. My other background is in aviation. I'm a private pilot as well as a, an AMP, so I have some mechanical background. And one of the flight schools that I got my license at, the director of maintenance wanted a website for his parts business. And his name was Jack, and we met, and we sort of hit it off. We became friends almost right away, and he was explaining to me that he needed a, a website for his eBay parts business. He was just explaining his model to me, and uh, he essentially became sort of my mentor because he would share how his model worked. He was selling airplane parts on eBay, and he had over a 1,000 listings at the time, and there was sort of a light bulb moment when he said that he had not just a few parts that he was selling, he had an assortment of inventory. There was a lot of aircraft parts that he was selling. I built him a website, and he kind of got me started in eBay, and I... I don't remember how I found the niche of auto parts or how I decided upon it. I was going to ask you that. Why auto parts? Yeah. So I, I should have probably started off saying I do OEM automotive parts, primarily Ford, GM, Nissan, parts that you would buy from the dealerships or from the manufacturer that come in the original OEM boxes. At the time, I think I had a like a tote full of old jet ski parts from one of my mechanic friends. And in there, there was a like a timing belt for a Honda, and it had the OEM Honda part number on it. And I thought, that could be what I try, because I knew that with, with auto parts, the price point was kind of where I wanted it. 
Jack, my friend that got me started in this, he had a good point. Like it takes the same amount of effort to sell a $10 part as it would like a $100 part. So I like the price point with auto parts where you're right around like 50 to $100 on average. And what I really liked was that there's a part number and that part number is kind of like your center anchor. It's the most specific piece of data you can use. And I knew that I was going to be able to find data on Google very easily. I was going to be able to find fitment data. I was going to be able to find the competitive price points. And if you put that in eBay, having just the part number to go off of instead of like several UPC codes or different sizes, I really liked that product niche. So I had a good feeling about it. And Jack's method of finding airplane parts was using local auctions, auction websites where you can buy bulk loads of inventory. And I thought there has to be an automotive parts niche just like that. So I was kind of eager to get started. I found a local auction. The first batch of inventory I bought was a pallet of Ford parts. And it was really, it was really distressed inventory. They were in the new OEM boxes unused. And I spent around 1500 was my initial investment in that pallet of parts. When I got the parts, I rented a little U-Haul trailer, got all the parts home, I think there was about 170 parts initially, and it took me a, at least a, a week or two to get those fully listed on eBay. And it came out to be somewhere between twelve to 15000 worth of parts. The objective was to recoup the initial investment as soon as I could, because they're, they're my theory, and, and based on Jack's model, was that I've got 12000 of inventory listed on eBay, If I sell and get my initial investment back within a month or two months, I can take that, reinvest it again. Now I have maybe, you know, 9,000 of inventory, but now I I just bought another load. Now I've snowballed that. Now I have a a larger inventory dollar amount, and that would equate to, obviously, a higher cash flow. And you can theoretically continue to build that, and it would compound. And that was my theory, and uh, it worked. It worked really well. So at this cheap apartment I had, was living in, there was a little garage. I essentially used the garage as the storage space. That was my initial starting point. So there was the initial investment was, like I said, 1500 and I didn't have any overhead with the garage. It was a good foundation to kind of validate the business model, see if I could recoup my initial investment, learn all the mistakes that I knew I was going to make with shipping, figure out the post office, learn eBay a little bit. That's what I did. And what's cool is I have pictures of all of this. When I first started, I took pictures of like the first load I bought, almost like a journal or a diary. I made my money back, I think within two months. And I had money saved. So I, I, I knew that I was selling. I was moving inventory. My eBay selling limits were low to start off with. Yeah. eBay kind of guide rails people into selling. So those limits can be pretty low when you first start off. Right. And and it made sense, too, because if I had been turned loose on the size I am now, it, it could be a disaster for customers. So that was good. And I, I think what I did was I called eBay and I would every month I would ask for a, a limit raise. And I forget the actual amount, but it worked out completely fine. What other challenges were there when you started first off? The main challenge was space. That was the main thing, which wasn't necessarily a challenge, but I knew if I was going to grow, I would have I would have to find either a warehouse or a storage unit. But that didn't make sense at the time cost-wise, so I wanted to try to bootstrap a little bit. The other challenge was uh, I saw other eBay sellers, they had compatibility charts on their listings, and I thought, okay, I got to figure out how to do that. 
that was another challenge. And then finding a way to have a more consistent way of getting supply of the parts. I knew that I couldn't rely on just one-off auctions. I was going to have to find a way to make that more consistent, especially if I was going to have overhead like a warehouse. What was the solution for that? Well, I knew that the initial load that I bought, I knew that those parts had come from a car dealership at some point, either a car dealership or a body shop. I know nothing about car dealerships or how the parts departments work, but there must be something that caused these parts to end up discarded. So I figured, okay, I've got to start maybe calling parts managers at dealerships. I've got to try body shops. And I think there's 20,000 total dealerships in America. So I said, if I can just tap into that, it should be a good way to validate the whole model. And it worked. And it did, yeah. I had to break out of my introverted shell to call. That's essentially how it got started in a garage and auction websites, sort of. The cool thing about this was somebody can spend very little money on a large dollar amount of inventory, recoup their initial investment back fairly quickly, and continue to snowball without having a large investment or uh, going into debt or anything like that. So give us an idea of how big your business is now. How many listings do you have up at the moment? At any given time, there's 44. 400 to 5,000 listings at my warehouse, and it's uh, 3,500 square feet. So I've got three rooms. I've got a shipping room. I've got a listing room. And at any given time, I've, I've got two helpers. They're primarily doing listings, taking photos of parts. Do you have an area set up in your business where you just take photos and, and someone does the listings? Yes, yes. And that's just a really big table with a roll of white sheet over it. And I've got your basic photo lights. And what's really cool about the eBay app on the phone is I just have my employees log into the eBay app and they can take draft photos with the phone. So they're just taking photos with the phone. So it, it makes it very quick to upload the parts in draft mode. And then I can come on the computer and list them later. You have a staff of two. Yeah, two. And when COVID started, we obviously lost our Disney gig but two of the other musicians in the band came to help me. So I had some trustworthy help. One of the guys still works with me today. And I've got a girl that helps me do the computer listings and things like that. It could be run as a single person operation at this level. It just would be a little bit overwhelming to get things listed. Having someone listing the parts for you really accelerates and takes a lot of the, the grunt work off the table. How has the pandemic affected your business? Have you been impacted by, for example the shipping delays that many sellers have experienced over the last few months? What I had tried to do at the beginning was predict what would happen. There was It could have gone in so many different directions. My original worry was, how are my dealerships going to be handling all this? How is the shipping? Is the post office going to close down? Is the UPS going to close down? I was so scared. And none of that happened. What I would do is I would call the dealerships and check up on them. How are you guys doing? And the peculiar thing was they were less busy in the service departments, but they were selling vehicles. They were breaking records for vehicles being sold. I wouldn't have expected that. The other wild card was that in that month of April and May, there was a shortage of inventory of vehicles. So you had people buying used cars, holding on to used cars. The value of used cars was ticking upwards. So you had smaller dealerships flipping used cars reselling used cars. And that helped me because I'm selling trim panels, trinkets, uh, emblems, and things that they needed. So at the same time, you have this sort of bad sign that people aren't going to be driving. But then on the other side, it made up for it and sort of equalized uh, the demand for parts. So there should have been a relief, I would imagine. Yeah. And I, it was in the middle of March and I just 
day by day, I kept watching the sales still come in and I'm thinking, okay, we're still doing this. We're still listing inventory. I didn't notice a drop off in sales because I was adding listings. What about shipping delays over the last few months? How was that? Over the last few months, you saw the post office struggling a bit, but then at the same time you had UPS enter the realm, I guess you could say. And the main problem was the tracking sometimes wouldn't pop up. I'm doing about close to 1,800, 2,000 units every quarter, and I might have had to open four lost claims. I think all things considered, that's probably not a bad figure, yeah. If it's a $9 gasket and it's lost, I would just apologize to the customer and say, I'm going to refund you for now. If it shows up, just let me know. But I didn't notice too bad of a, of a delay just going off of the messages that I got. Did you have any uh, customers who then got their package after you refunded them? Yeah, I had I had one where I sent out two pairs of tow hooks to somebody. They had told me they got the other ones and they're like, do you want me to send it back or I could send it back? And I, I it was I think I was going to lose like $40. So I just said, just don't go to the post office. It's it's not worth your time. I appreciate you calling. Yeah, just one like that. What are your plans for the business for 2021 based on what you've experienced over the last year? Since I started, I've, I've always been in a growth mindset. I've always been in a growth phase. I haven't yet decided where I want to stop. You know, I started in that little garage. Then I moved into a, a four-bedroom house that I was renting, and I turned the living room into a warehouse. So, <laughs> so imagine, I have pictures of all this too. So I had a living room full of shelving of auto parts, dusty auto parts. Were you living alone in that place at the time? I had one roommate. And he was actually helping me with the business. So, and, and yeah, so we, we didn't have a TV. We didn't have a couch. We'd have guests over and they would be... They'd be shipping packages for you. <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. They'd say, you have a stock room inside your house? I would have freight shipments come to the, <laughs> to the house. But it worked. It was, I was able to further validate the model, further acquire inventory, and then finally justify going to a big storage unit. At some point, I knew I had to get to a, a bigger, more official warehouse and figure out how to get to the size of being able to handle that overhead. What method do you employ for keeping track of your business? Do you use accounting software? Do you have an inventory tracking system so you know when you may have some parts that need to be restocked? How do you manage all this? I'm really basic. I use Excel or the accountant and for keeping my ship in the right direction. I do as well. I use that. A lot of other sellers will rely on different software. You said you had staff. How do you handle, for example, payroll? Yeah, so they're not on a W-2. It started off as always someone coming to help. They're not even part-time. They would have a full-time job and they would come in and do some listings. Like on a contractual basis. Exactly. So it'd be 1099. That's primarily the labor cost. It's pretty low. Each helper is putting in a couple hours, maybe sometimes 20 hours a week just catching up on getting the, the drafts made. But as part of your growth plan, mm -hmm. if you want to get to a point in your business where it's self-sustaining and you even have a clone for you, you're going to have to look at, don't you think, having full-time or part-time employees that are actually official employees of the business? Absolutely. Yeah. And then coming up with a salary that would incentivize them to stay just because you're investing that time training them. I'd really like to find someone that knows eBay as well or is familiar with it. But yeah, that would be essential. That has to happen. Are you utilizing the eBay feature for um, multiple user account access? I was initially when I would have people working remotely from home on there. But for using the eBay app, there's no way to do that. I would love to have some sort of the admin feature working on the app. That would be great. 
you uh, use Excel, how often do you make entries? Do you have a regular practice where you have to sit down and like I do every week, I, I don't sell that much right at the moment, but I'm always uh, adding in my purchases, for example, when I know they're going to be inventory. How do you use your accounting software to plan out for something like buying inventory? Yeah, so I try to do it absolutely on a quarterly basis. And what's was challenging at first is when you're in the growth phase, when you're starting off that first year, you really don't have enough data to sort of compute what your real selling cost is. Am I going to move this inventory that I just bought in a year? So I think it really took about two solid years to kind of get a rough idea of what my numbers were. The main expense is inventory, obviously. The other main expense is the selling cost. So I like to really keep those two in focus. And I know I have a number based on I have to buy this much inventory every month or every quarter to sustain this monthly cash flow. So I know that if I wanted to stop this growth level right now, I have a number in mind that every month I need to spend this much on inventory. But yeah, to your question, I try to watch that Excel spreadsheet and add to it quarterly and touch base on it. I'm watching my shipping costs because with my inventory, it's so random. I can be selling a bumper that has to go freight and then I could be selling a, an emblem that goes first class. The shipping is just all over the place as far as cost. So you're always watching those. The other big thing I learned was that the larger the business grew, you initially wouldn't worry about saving 1% or 2% on certain things like shipping. But now with the numbers being the way they are, paying attention to small things like that is really worth it. Saving 2% a month on shipping or watching your return rate. So some of those things I try to tie into the accounting as well. I think those are critical, but yeah. So I use Excel to keep track of all the receipts and inventory I buy, the loads that I buy. I think everyone who's using Excel actually creates their own custom form of accounting. Give us an example of how you're using Excel. For example, what do you enter for an item? Are there specific attributes that you have different columns? Be curious to hear this. I think as any seller, we'd love to know what another seller is doing. I would assume and I would hope that there are probably much better methods than what I'm doing. It would be really easy if I had 50 SKUs of the same part. You know what you paid for each one. This is your supplier. This is the margin I'm always going to make. And you can plan ahead and kind of put that on on its own autopilot. But for me, let's say that I spend $2,000 on a load of air filters for Caterpillar diesel engines or something. The only thing I know is that altogether there might be 170 units in that pallet and it might be worth 10000 or something. I know that I can put the average sale price of each part is $59 or something or $60. I want to pay 20% of what I'm going to sell something for. I want that to be my cost, 20 to 30%. Each load that I buy, I can put a cost on each part and each inventory purchase I make which is a bulk load, I set it as a separate store category in my eBay account. So that way I can see, okay, this is a Tampa Bay auction lot, May 2020 or something. I can go into my listings, active listings. I could see select that store category. I can see that the dollar amount of all that inventory. And on each individual listing, I could write in the description somewhere a little number that kind of tells me that this is my cost in that part. I'm sure there's much easier ways to do this. You could do this in Excel, but it would be so time consuming that it wouldn't, it would almost not be worth it. Because it's double data entry. You don't want to repeat yourself. And trusting eBay with, with all the data, I try to recoup my initial investment on everything I buy within two to three months. And I try to keep my total inventory dollar amount growing 
That's like my guiding North Star. It's really hard to do because some of my inventory, it, it can take years to sell. It's very long tail. Yeah. So it sounds unorganized. It doesn't sound that unorganized to me. You have some way of knowing so that you can always go back and check. Exactly. And I think the main takeaway from that to sort of touch on is I really rely on the store category in the eBay listing dashboard. When I buy a certain load of inventory, I always set that inventory so it's organized. So I know that bundle, I have this much invested in it. I can see, okay, I've I've recouped that initial investment. Now I'm in the green with that. Or I can see if I bought the parts, if I pick them out individually in an order from, say, a dealership, I can see what I paid the dealership for that part and immediately know, okay, I made 20% profit on this one. I know that. So that's that's helpful. But I would say I, I really couldn't live without using eBay as sort of a frame for the bookkeeping, I guess you could say. That was part one of my interview with eBay seller Alec Larson. We'll continue with part two next week when Alec reveals his particular sourcing methods in greater detail. I'll put a link to Alec's eBay store, Larson Enterprises, in the transcript for this episode, episode 127. You got questions? We got answers. Our first question is from Mr. Dana Ebbett, and it's a shipping question, specifically about unwanted combined shipping. Dana writes, Dear eBay Podcast, my name is Mr. Dana Ebbett. I only use the term Mr. because the last time I wrote in, I was mistaken for a female. Oh, no. No worries, though. Happens all the time. Oh, dear. We apologize, Dana. I'll do my research next time. We should not have assumed gender on the basis of the name. We'll be more mindful in the future. Yes. Yes? Yes. Dana goes on. My eBay user ID is traditional underscore hunter. My question is, I recently sold three deer hunting tree stands, and each tree stand comes in a fairly heavy, large box and must be shipped individually. I should also state that the buyer had to pay for the shipping. The shipping calculator combined the weight and size of all three stands into one shipment and charged the buyer $30 for shipping. When I shipped the items, I had to create three separate shipments and was charged $16 for each. This caused me to have to pay $18 above and beyond what the buyer paid for shipping. Is there a way that I could have set up the shipping that would have prevented this problem? Thanks for your help. Love the show. Thanks for the question, Dana. This is part of the old combined shipping discounts tool that we spoke of in a recent episode. Fortunately, there is a quick fix, and it's one that every seller may want to check now before what happened to Dana happens to them. So, Dana, the shipping calculator is using your own settings for combined shipping discounts and applying them to your listing. That's what happened. That's why the three purchases were combined into one purchase. Now, in order to prevent this in the future, you'll need to either edit an existing shipping business policy like the one for this deer stand listing, or you could create a new one to apply, well, to any relevant listings now and in the future where you don't want any of the multiple purchases to ever be combined into one shipment. It sounds like these deer stands are perfect for that. We'll tell you how to do it. And it is easy to do this. Just go to Seller Hub, Listings, and click on the link for business policies in the left-hand navigation. Once in business policies, select shipping policy to edit, or you can instead create a new one. Fill out all the necessary information and make sure that the box for combined shipping discounts is unchecked. Unchecked. Give your new policy an easily identified name, for example, no combined shipping discounts, then save the new policy. And we'll include an image of this in the transcript as well. 
can then apply this policy to any appropriate listing where you don't want to combine multiple purchases into one shipping box. Exactly. And there's another option too. If you just want to make this quick and the listing is still up, you can edit the policy that's in place for the deer stand listing. That would be just going to the revise button on the top of that listing and clicking it. And then when you're in the revise page, scroll down to the shipping section, click edit for the shipping policy and uncheck the box for combined shipping discounts. There's another option, you know. There is? Yeah. The seller could check his settings for combined shipping discounts and make adjustments. Ah, of course. I forgot about that option. Uh, it's recently been upgraded, by the way, that tool, the old combined shipping discount. So it looks different. So Dana, you should check the configuration for your current combined shipping discounts and adjust them as necessary. And you can find these at, well, it's a long link, and we'll put the link in the episode transcript. It's www.ebay.com forward slash ship forward slash P as in Paul, R, F as in Frank, P, R, F. For preferences, I suppose. There are two configurations you can adjust in that tool. There is a flat shipping rule set up and a calculated shipping rule setup. There's also an option for promotional shipping rules as well. Now keep in mind that these settings are global. They apply to any listing where you offer combined shipping discounts. So for example, you can set the flat or calculated rules to add or subtract a specific amount to shipping for each additional purchased item. This might work for your deer stand. I, I don't know the weight and the size, but it could. It could. So Dana, we encourage you to explore these settings. But in the meantime, the quick fix for your deer stand listing is to make sure that the combined shipping option for the shipping policy for that listing is unchecked. Our next question is from eBay seller Wayne, who writes, Been listening for a while and love the stories and great info I get. I have a question about multi-item listings. I often list items with a quantity of 10 to 20 in stock. As I sell through the listing, then shows the 7 sold and 13 available, and continues to count down and show that until it sells out. So my question is multiple. First, I feel that there is a value in customers seeing that I've sold X number and I have X number available. Does eBay account for that and rank it higher if that is the case, rather than an individual item or a listing with many but none sold? So that's his first question. Number two, I try to keep track and go in and revise the item and increase the quantity as I sell through so the listing never runs out. But is that the right practice or should I just let it sell out and then do a relist? If it is better to do the relist, is there a way to open back up the listing and update the quantity? If I do let the listing sell out to zero quantity available rather than just hitting the relist button. What is the best practice when you have multiples of the same item? Do you list them with a quantity available or do you just list each one? Thanks, Wayne. Boy, a lot of questions there. <laughs> that was more than two, I think, Griff. Yeah. But glad to hear he enjoys the podcast. And I think I have the first part of his question, may I? Yeah, be my guest. So Wayne, every time an item sells in a multi-quantity listing, the sale gives the listing an incremental boost in best match. The factor is called sales over impressions. The more sales from a multi-quantity listing, the bigger the boost in ranking, as long as that listing exists, and it can exist in two states, more in a moment. The sales over impressions number for that listing is in play. The more sales, the more solid the boost in ranking. Ending a multi-quantity listing and relisting it will erase any previous sales over impressions data, so keeping that listing live is critical. Very good, Brian. I didn't know you knew so much about this. Excellent. I know a few things. <laughs> so, Wayne, different sellers employ different quantity available strategies. Some sellers like to keep the visible quantity available amount low to help increase urgency to purchase among buyers. 
Now, other sellers are not concerned with the visible quantity available mounts. A seller has the option to select a display that states more than 10 available for quantity available number, or they can just show the quantity available. These are sellers who have a lot of quantity of one item to sell, and it's not a matter of urgency. Right. Some sellers have items that go in and out of stock. For example, based on seasonality, sellers of these items don't want to lose any previous sales over impressions data for a listing. There is an option a seller can employ called stockout. If the toggle for this option is set to yes, a fixed price listing that goes to zero quantity will not end, but will instead show a quantity of zero with an indication that says, this item is out of stock. As long as this listing is in the out-of-stock status, it will not return in any searches. Once the seller adds a quantity to the out-of-stock listing, the listing will resume with its previous sales over impressions data in place. Yeah, and one other caveat. If a seller toggles the out-of-stock option to yes, it will cover all fixed-price listings, including those that had a quantity of one. Some sellers find this confusing since out-of-stock listings will show up in the active view of Seller Hub, leading those sellers to believe their zero-quantity listings are still available for purchase. They are not. So for sellers who rarely offer a multi-quantity fixed-price listing, it's probably best not to use the out-of-stock option. But if a seller has significant numbers of multi-quantity listings that by nature go in and out of stock, that seller should seriously consider using the out-of-stock option. Brian, how does Wayne find these settings? He can find the pages for changing these settings by this navigation. My eBay account the account tab, I should say, and site preferences. The settings for quantity display and stock out are at the top of that page, and we'll put the links for the pages in the transcript for episode 127. Thanks again to both our sellers for sending their questions to us. They were really good questions. And if you have a vexing question, a vexing question, a vexing question about selling or listing or anything eBay related, why not call it in to us at 888-723-4630? Yes, that vexing little number is 888-723-4630. And if you're one of those shy persons who prefer not to call, you can always email us at podcast at ebay.com. That's podcast at ebay.com. Two options, phone or email. Great. And now it's time for your weekly podcast to-do list reminder. First and always, check the announcement board for up-to-date seller news. And always check your email for eBay alerts or updates as well. Number two, do you need help setting up your thermal printer? You know, the one you bought on my recommendation? No, not that again. <laughs> if not, why not send us an email or call us and we'll walk you through it here on the show. What is this? The eBay for Business Technical Support Podcast? And finally, always check out the transcript for this and all episodes for follow-up on what you've heard and to see the links we referenced during the episode. Now, on our next episode, we'll have part two of our conversation with eBay seller Alec Larson. On part two, we'll talk about how he sources products for his eBay store. We'd like to again thank our guests this week, Mr. Customer Service, Tim Chapman, and eBay seller, Alec Larson. And thanks again, Brian. We'll see you again for episode 129 in two weeks. Yes, 129 in two weeks. I'm, I guess I'm an oddball. I'm on the odd numbers. <laughs> I didn't think of that, yes. I'll be here. And thanks to our regular listeners without who there would be no podcast. So true. The eBay for Business podcast is produced and distributed by Libsyn and Podcast 411.
if you're listening to this right now, it might be interesting because this episode does not have a number and this is a bonus episode. We hardly ever do these, but we do these when there's something really, really important to share, especially something new in an industry or something that we wanna get in front of you as soon as possible. So I'm really, really excited because today we're gonna be talking about community and specifically we're gonna be talking about a particular tool that helps enhance communities. And we have very, very much experienced so much of this tool recently with the recent launch of SPI Pro, recently had Matt on to talk about the launch of that. Speaking of Matt, guess what? He's here with us today too. What's up, Matt? How are you? Hello, hello. It's great to be back, Pat. (laughs) I think one of the last times we chatted, we actually talked about the launch of our community, SPI Pro. Tell us a little bit about now that we're several months ahead of that or forward of it. What is building this community done for the business and just the people in it? I think it's validated a lot of our longer-term vision and, and thinking for where you know we need to continue to play a really important role in the industry. Private membership communities, you know, have been around for a while, but I think with just what's even happening in the world right now, you know, people are craving you know these forms of interactions more. So our ability to bring that to bear through SPI Pro that we launched last summer was very you know well timed and and has just been. Uh, a tremendous source of inspiration, even for us to see just how well, you know, our members have really rallied behind that sort of an ecosystem and have leaned into that opportunity to meet other people and support themselves. It's been the biggest, I think, joy and certainly one of the the most strategic things that we have done on the business side for SPI probably in the last couple of years. So for anybody listening to this who's interested in building community, which hopefully you all are in some way, shape or form, and perhaps you've tried a Facebook group or other systems to bring communities together, we feel that we found something that works really, really well. And this is why exactly this episode exists, because we wanted to bring on the founders of the tool that we're using. It's called Circle. And although we will be talking about Circle, a lot of the principles and things that we're going to be discussing today are just about community in general. And in fact, Circle, which we do have an affiliate link for, we'll mention all that stuff later, is now one of the most integral parts of our business and so, so important to us that we just had to share it with others too. And in this episode in particular, you're going to hear specifically an introduction to Sid, who's the co-founder, and just why community is something we should be focusing on right now, right? And there's so many of us that have been trying Facebook groups and stuff, and those things work, but when we really want a long-term sort of community that we own and that we can control, that we have some ability to craft into whichever direction we want, it's important to have control over this, and, and this is why doing this out of Facebook is key. So I'll be interviewing Sid at first, and then Matt, you go into a really cool roundtable discussion with the team. What do you guys talk about during that portion of the talk here? Yes, in the second segment is the roundtable conversation with all the Circle co-founders, actually. So we have Sid back on the call along with Andy and Rudy. So it's the four of us together having a really fantastic, more in-depth conversation on you know why they sensed an opportunity to, say, leave Teachable. A lot of them got their start from Teachable that we know and love. So we unpack that story more, their own origin story for them as individuals, for them as friends, you know, during their Teachable days, and why they felt that this wasn't just a small thing for the future of creators in the, you know, the creator economy, but why this is actually a big thing and one of the biggest things. It's not a, you know, a flash in the pan, right? You know, this is something that so many of us and certainly us at SPI, but even others, uh, a lot of others are paying much more attention to as an integral component to both their brand building as well as their business building. And it's an absolutely great story of just how to do a startup right from the research to the partnership to all that stuff, all that stuff is in that segment. And then we end with a roundtable with you, Matt, and Jillian, Mindy, and Jay, who are on our customer experience team and community experience team. And 
Can you talk a little bit about what people can look forward to in, within that? Absolutely. So in segment three with Jay and Jillian and Mindy, you know, we really talk about the nuts and the bolts on the inside of, you know, SPI and what community means to us and why, you know, integrating a platform like Circle is so, you know, necessary for our vision and what we're trying to accomplish because we've only just started. I, I know I've mentioned that even, Pat, you know, back on the episode when we talked about launching SPI Pro, you know, this isn't the end. It's just the beginning. What can we do to keep pushing the envelope forward and continue to, through SPI, teach what we know, as we always do and as you always do, so that other people that maybe share the same compassion for community can follow, follow suit? Yes, you're almost getting an inside look. You know, you're going through the factory doors and you're seeing how it's all made. And we're just going to be talking about it very openly and honestly. And we're still figuring things out, too. And I think that's the cool thing about this. You can kind of see us and imagine our brains working as we go and are trying to provide value to the audience. And so if you're at all interested about community and you're wondering how it all works, how we're building the team, how we're actually managing the community, as well as the tool. And I'm just going to be upfront with you. For those of you listening, you might be like, oh, Circle, you keep talking about Circle. Yeah, because this is an absolutely amazing tool. I'm not going to lie. We are an affiliate for it. Matt and I are both advisors to the company as well. And as you know, I'm always fully upfront with you. But we wouldn't be those things if we didn't believe that this tool was absolutely game-changing for you and the community that you could potentially look into. Now, again, you don't have to go to, to Circle. You can go to a different one, and that's totally fine. We just want you to get value here and to understand community is important, how to manage it, and whichever tools you choose to use, great. But we highly recommend checking out Circle, and you'll hear why at the end. And so links and everything in the show notes, but why don't we just get to the episode? Yeah, let's do it, Pat. All right, so I think that's been enough talking. Let's just dive right in. Here is me and one of the co-founders, Sid, talking about just community and why this is so important right now. Sid, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today, man. Hey, Pat. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about Circle. Of all the things that happened in 2020, probably the number one request we've had is we need more information about Circle and how it develops community. And definitely we're going to dive into that today. But before we get to that, first of all, I'd love to hear just kind of your origin story as an entrepreneur to begin with. And we'll tie all this together in the end. But tell us a little bit about you and sort of how you got here. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in New Zealand. I've lost the accent now. I moved over to the States when I was 22. I just happened to join a startup called Teachable. So I was the first designer, front-end hire, and you know walked into WeWork downtown New York, met this group of dudes, and it was like, okay, these guys are up to something interesting. You know, There's something interesting going on in the, the online courses world. And I really didn't realize what the ramifications of it were. I was just like, you know, there's something happening here and these guys seem cool. Little did I know that, you know, I basically entered into this movement. So from a personal perspective, my career just sort of, essentially the job that I had changed every three months. So started as an IC designer, became Teachable's first product manager. Eventually I was managing a product team of four PMs, a design team. When I left last year, the company was about a hundred people. So really watched that company grow internally. And then from the, the business perspective, watch the creator movement evolve. And really, that's where I got the passion for the creator space. And that, that's what led me to Circle. Yeah, and many people who are listening to this know about Teachable, know I'm an advisor for Teachable. And Anker has been on the show before to talk about online courses and how important that is. And that's been absolutely instrumental in my career and here at Team SPI, just the ability to create online courses that can help people learn and transform. And that's really, really important. 
But there's another side of this learning process. It's not just the content, it's also the community aspect of it. And I'd love to know a little bit more about why you and your team decided to sort of, I mean, you literally branched out or essentially stopped working at Teachable to start Circle. And I'm curious, like, why was that such an obvious thing for you to do? Why is community something that we should be focusing on? Yeah, um, so so it wasn't obvious at, at first. So, you know, when I left back in April last year, I knew that I wanted to start my own company. You know, it's one of the, the reasons I actually immigrated from New Zealand was to become an entrepreneur. So after five years, I was like, okay, I kind of feel ready, but I don't have a specific idea. All I know is there's something about inspiring about building for creators in that it's not like you're building for hundreds of millions of consumers and you don't know what the persona is. Like, you know, these guys, like you meet them at events, you hang out with them and you really feel that connection that I don't think you do with a consumer startup or something that's super B2B enterprise. So, you know, I, I knew that that's where my focus was going to be, but it was really a four to five month incubation period that led us to community. The way we started out, we meaning my uh, my two co-founders, both also now ex-teachable, we started to essentially have conversations with anyone who would talk to us. And most of them happened to be teachable course creators. And we would ask them very open-ended questions. So things like, you know, what are you excited about? Uh, in the next year, where are you looking to for the growth of your your business or your course business, your audience? And really, where, where are your pain points? So show us your stack, you know, give us a sense of your day to day and what, what that's like. And after many, many of these conversations, we started to hear two things. So one, almost everyone we spoke to spoke about the importance of community. So they would talk about the value of building an audience that's engaged they use the word you like a lot, super fans. And uh, at a high level, it was kind of like, yeah, it, it makes complete sense. The community is very important to, to have a shelf life as a creator. And then when we started digging into their stack and the products that they used and the integrations that they had to make possible to make it all work together, it just didn't feel like this was the ideal experience, both for the member and for the creator to actually, you know, set up an online community, set up an experience that brings together their their audience, their content, their payments, all of that stuff. It just didn't feel like it was nailed at all. And that's where we saw the opportunity. You know, you may have an online course on Teachable or a similar product. You may have, let's say, a YouTube channel, and then you have this Facebook group that sort of sits there. And your your students, you know, on the one hand, they're happy to have an avenue where they can meet like-minded folks, but it never felt like it was an integrated experience for a lot of folks. And at the same time, they would tell us, you know, communities where I'm looking to for the next year. Yeah. And we even saw like in 20 or late 2019 and, and mid 2020s, Facebook promoting groups even more, right? Getting really into putting even money behind the promotion of their groups. And I, I remember commercials on TV about certain groups and it was just really interesting. But I think we also know and have felt in the past what it might be like to build a community on a free platform and all of a sudden either have it taken away from us or have to pay to play or have people see stuff. And when you're building in somebody else's sandbox like that, it can be very dangerous. And I think we've all experienced that before, which is why when I came across Circle, first of all, thank you, Encore, for just the initial sort of pointing toward your direction. And my partner, Matt, and I have fallen so much in love with Circle, in fact, that we're now advisors for the company, just like with what we felt with Teachable. And it just solves a very specific problem that we've had. And we know our creators here who are listening to SPI also have too. For those who maybe aren't as convinced that community is the place to be or the thing to create, 
I'd love to hear from your perspective as somebody building solutions in this space. Why is that a mistake to sort of let community go by? Yeah, really the thing, the goal for any creator or brand should be to have a shelf life, right? You may start off building an email list around a specific interest, a specific niche. You may have a product or two that you launch, you know, whether it's an online course or an ebook. But if you take the long-term view into really what you're looking to do, you're looking to build a, you know, sustainable business, something that actually can make you money, something that people are excited about over time, right? And really the thread that I see for most creators who go product to product, you know, who go article to article, is that community that you're building alongside it. So on the one level, you know, you're you're essentially building this group of people that are passionate about what you do, that have a shared interest. You're enabling them to meet each other. When they're meeting each other, they're talking about you. They validate your, your importance to them. And in that way, they kind of welcome anyone new that, that starts to follow you. And over time, what happens is, let's say you've been building online courses for years, you may then realize that you, know, you have a interested enough group of people that will actually pay you for a community experience that's that's more catered to them. And um, you know, this speaks to what you've done with SPI Pro, but really what people are looking for with more established creators is to meet like-minded people in a more intimate fashion to get exclusive access to a creator like yourself. And that's really where the importance of having a white label solution, a platform that can house all of your stuff. So not just posts and comments, but your content, payments, a really integrated experience that you can actually position and brand. And that's where solutions like Facebook groups and Slack kind of just overstay their welcome, right? And and it's at that point where it's time for a creator to actually move on and look to a platform like us. What are some examples of communities that are using Circle that kind of might be surprising to us? It's interesting. It's like every single day we, we hear of a community that we would just never think would use us. So we, we have a community dedicated to, let's say, beer science. That, that was very interesting to me. And this, awesome. this group of folks that are super into that, they're scrapbooking communities. I find the more interesting examples to be in that realm where it's not just the fact that people are fans or from product. There's there's things to actually share and learn from each other. Or if, if I'm just a fan of a creator, right? And if, if I'm consuming your content on Instagram, let's say, you know, that's interesting. But if I'm learning from from your audience, from from people who are like me, I'm actually building connections that may lead me to a better career and better outcome. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. We see it in SPI Pro, of course, and we see not just people there to connect with our team, but they're connecting with each other, they're supporting each other. Certain people have literally stepped up to lead conversations and to share certain things. And with the cool integrations with things like Loom and YouTube, it's just very simple to kind of share that information. When you were building Circle with you and your team, what were the what were the major things that you were like, we have to get this right? Because Facebook and LinkedIn groups and all these other places just aren't doing it. Yeah. So, so I think a big thing for us was giving creators the ability to design their community areas. What we saw with products like Facebook groups and even Slack and LinkedIn groups to some extent is um, you know, the intentionality tends to be different based on what the creator is looking to do. So you may want a area dedicated in your community to just Q&As, right? And you wouldn't want that mixed up with introductions. So you wouldn't want that one 
linear newsfeed experience where, you know, someone's having a really interesting conversation about a certain topic. And then the next post you see is someone introducing themselves. And that's kind of where we started were how do we take this linear newsfeed format that's, that's very popular in products like Facebook groups and start to distinguish that? So we looked to Slack for some inspiration with the channels paradigm and we, we call them spaces. And that really empowers creators to, you know, design their experience from end to end. So if I'm a creator, I can think about what are the public spaces that would make sense? So maybe something like a blog could be housed within Circle, something like a showcase space where People are showing off their creations and I may be okay to make that stuff public. Whereas if I have a paid membership or, you know, if I have an online course, I may want to crack open a private space that's dedicated for that single purpose. And that's really where we started to differentiate with these products because, you know, what happened is I may have a Facebook group that's dedicated to all my fans, but what happens when I start my online course or what happens when I want to branch that out? it ends up being the case that most creators sort of bifurcate that experience. And that's where a lot of the messiness comes in. And we're able to unify that with with our paradigm. I always describe it as when people are like, okay, just tell me in like one minute, like, how would you describe it? I'm like, it's all the things you love about Facebook group in it and all the things you hate are out. And then it's all the things you love about Slack that are in it and all the things you don't like about Slack are out. It's like, you're just taking all the best and it's just this brilliant solution for building communities. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do you keep a community thriving? I think a big worry that people have when you know building a community, whether it's a Facebook group or something on Circle, for example, is just like, okay, well, I just don't want it to be a ghost town. What if I set this up and nobody talks and it's just like empty? That would make me feel even worse. So I might as well not even try. How would you respond to somebody who's worried about that? Yeah, uh, I, th- I think you spoke to this before, but in the initial stages of community building, you know, it's, it's about you as a creator being in there, being a little hands-on, kind of kindling that fire and really, you know, seeding something that can grow by itself, right? But your goal, let's say after the first six months or 12 months, should be to not be as hands-on as you were in the initial days. So to the extent that you you see people really step up wanting to be community leaders, moderators, super contributors, right? I think that's one of the things we see tends to be very common in uh, communities that that sort of last, which is they're able to inspire the next generation of community leaders within their community to kind of take that to the next level. And it's not a linear thing where it's like I start a community and then the community has a end goal that might be like that for, let's say, an online course community. It's it's really you're looking to build that feedback loop and that long term loop that leads your members to step up and kind of take over what the community ends up becoming. I love that answer. Thank you for that. The final question I have for you is, Sid, okay, people are listening to this. They're like, okay, Circle sounds great. It's a separate platform where I can take ownership of this community and I can really, you know, create this experience. But Facebook is free, dude. And so are these other platforms. What would get a person to actually pay to want to get access to this? Like, it's it just, you know, for many, it just doesn't make sense when there are Facebook groups and everybody's on Facebook already. What's the incentive of a person actually paying to become a part of a membership? Yeah, it, it really depends on where you are in your creator journey. So, you know, there are a lot of creators when they're just starting out, let's say you don't have an audience yet, or you're just starting to build content. You know, we actually recommend Facebook groups to those, those types of people because what we tell them is, hey, we're actually not going to help you with the discovery element. So you may want to look for an aggregator or 
some place to gain that visibility, right? And that's where th- those products really stand out. Right. But once you've established an audience, once you've established content, and your goal is then to take that to the next level by integrating an experience. So if you're starting a paid membership, if you're integrating community with an online course, if being white labeled is important to you. So the idea of like calling something SPI Pro, like, you know, how valuable is it that that lives on the SPI website under the SPI brand versus is seen as just a Facebook group, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really where we come in and we, you know, give you that sort of end-to-end solution that integrates everything in one place with these. And at the same time, you know, we have an iOS app, we're working on an Android app. So we're also looking into some of the more discovery elements. But I think right now we're probably better suited for folks who are further down that creator path and are looking for a platform to sort of bring everything together. I love that. And you got to realize, remember listening, everybody, is that you don't need a million people in here to do some amazing things. In fact, that would probably be too big for a community. (laughs) Like just a small group of people who can come together, who are in a safe space to communicate and be weird with each other. That's how I love to say it's like, you don't need a lot of people. If you had 100 people paying you you know, $19.95 a month. I mean, you're making $2,000 a month there, right? And then imagine getting to just a thousand true fans. That's a fan a day for less than three years. To have somebody come in and support the the group and be a part of something and pay far less than they would for like coffee every week. It's like, it makes complete sense when you nail the messaging, you nail the positioning and you create this amazing community. If I may add one thing to that, people think that an engaging community is engaging like 90 plus percent of my members, right? And what we see frequently is you have this breakdown of you have the super fans who are very engaged, they're contributing content, they may be producing content. You have some group of folks who are more the likers and the commenters, they, they like to be in there, but they're not necessarily going to, you know, write long form posts or make videos. And then you have some people just observing and they may log in once a week an analogy we love to use is it's it's almost like church for them. They'll show up once a week, you know, they'll get the value that they need out of it. And that's it. And it's really okay to have that. And you don't need to aspire to engage, you know, massive amounts of your audience as a percentage. Yeah, love that. Thank you for that positioning. And, and so I, I encourage everybody to continue listening because we're going to change gears here. We're going to go to Matt who's going to host Sid and his partners for the leadership and discussion about the team and how this thing was put together and whatnot. So Sid, thank you for this first portion. This was amazing. I think it's inspiring and I can't wait to hear the rest of it. So here we go. Thanks for having me on. So as you can tell, this is a different and special episode of the Smart Passive Income Podcast, and I'm so glad you're here. Before we go on to the next segment, I just wanna tell you about an upcoming free live webinar on community building that we'll be doing with the Circle team. This week, I'm gonna be hosting two free live trainings with our friends from Circle to help you take the guesswork out of creating your own community. It's called How to Create Your Own Community on Circle, our simple five-part framework based on real-life examples from Circle's most successful communities. In these trainings, we're gonna go deeper on how to create your own community on Circle, and we're gonna take you behind the scenes of community building with dozens of real-life examples so you know exactly what the most successful communities are doing right now. 
You'll learn how to make community sustainable for you to manage, make sure it's fun and satisfying for you as well as the uh, people who are gonna be signing up into your community. We're gonna walk you through the 30-minute exercise that every first-time community builder should run to give yourself the best chance to nail community market fit and so much more. So we'll share the details of an exclusive circle offer for those who attend as well. And all you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. You can join us on either Wednesday, February 10th at 1 p.m. Pacific or Thursday, February 11th at noon Pacific. Just sign up today at smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars and choose the best date that works for you. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. Hey everyone, it's Matt. Excited to be here for the in-depth conversation with the entire Circle team. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed Pat's interview with Sid up front in the first segment here. With me now is Sid again, plus his co-founders, Andy and Rudy. So Rudy, Sid, Andy, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thrill to just go deeper into a lot of these founding stories with entrepreneurs like you, companies like yours, at really interesting moments in your growth and inflection. So maybe to kind of really dig into more of those kind of behind the scenes things that perhaps aren't discussed as much said, I'm curious, way back when, you know, when you are at Teachable, and you started to get this itch for maybe something else. I'm always really curious to understand the hard decision. I imagine it was hard to consider leaving a really awesome job and, you know, a team at Teachable and Andy and Rudy, you know, you guys obviously at Teachable as well. Like, how did that decision go down, right? To say, okay, the creator economy is really taking off. Communities may be an avenue of growth that we want to participate in, but man, I have something so good right now. So how did you guys wrestle with that decision? Yeah. So I guess for me, uh, you know, I, I'd stayed at Teachable for five years. I'd started as a first IC designer, front end engineer, really when I started, you know, there are three dudes out of WeWork in uh, downtown New York. And to go from there to where I was five years in, you know, I was managing a product team of four PMs. I had a design team. And really, the company was about 100, 100 folks by that time. So on the one hand, it had felt like a sense of accomplishment, like like I'd scaled up a bunch, you know, I'd learned how to manage. I'd learned how to be an executive. I'd learned how to learn in a situation where your job literally changes every couple months. At the same time, kind of five years in, I had to ask myself, you know, is this what I want to do? Uh, and is this the thing that I want to be like the world's best at? So when I looked ahead as a VP of product, what I saw was, you know, my next job would have been to hire director of products. It would have been to scale the company from, let's say, 100 to 200 people. It was very operational. And not to say that that can't be exciting. I think for a certain type of persona, like they just excel at that. But for me, I'd always thought of myself as a as an entrepreneur. So kind of had to make that call and say, okay, you know what? I think I've done what I can given where I started. It's been a good run, but it's time to pass on the baton to someone that's say more experienced, someone who's who's done the scaling part of startups. And for me personally, just to go back to the ground floor and kind of discover other areas of opportunities in the creator landscape. So in that same time frame, it sounded like Rudy, maybe a similar headspace. How did that first conversation go? It sounds like Sid, perhaps you initiated it, you know, coming to Rudy and eventually Andy, you get pulled into this as well. Like how, how did that conversation go around? Like, hey guys, 
I have this big crazy idea. I think this is the right team. I want you guys as a part of this. Like, how did you guys start to then form that partnership conversation? Well, it was interesting. I uh, come from a little bit of a different background to these two. These two both stayed at Teachable for five-ish years. I spent six months there. And after my time at Teachable, I built a company that was specifically dealing with course creators. So working with a lot of uh, Teachable's high-end course creators. And that gave me, a, let's say, an insight from the other side of the fence, working directly with them, seeing what the problems were day-to-day and what they were trying to achieve. And uh, did that for a couple of years. And then Sid and I found ourselves on holiday in uh, Portugal. And the conversation started on a rooftop after a wonderful dinner one night. And it kind of just flowed from there. So on this rooftop, we, we had a bit of a conversation. And there was nothing sort of concrete about a specific idea. But we left that conversation basically saying, let's do something together. And then it evolved from there. So it was, uh, it was a wonderful evening. <laughs> I think between Rudy and I, in that one night, we probably went through like five different ideas. And Circle itself was maybe our 10th one as a whole that we talked about, but it was also the more obvious one. And it's interesting that we came back to the more obvious one after branching out to ones that were very different from, from this creator ecosystem. That's really interesting. So it's, it's the sticky one. It's the one that you know, made the most sense after you've scrutinized the market fit opportunity or just you know, other options. And yeah, I, I'm a believer that sometimes the obvious simple choice is you know, the best one. It's, it's, it's the one that most resonates probably with the other side of that conversation, you know, a uh, potential customer, potential fan, right? Andy, when did you get pulled into those conversations and how did that feel to you being pulled into that? Well, you know, the truth is I wasn't really pulled into it. I kind of forced my way into it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to be leaving people relatively soon. It was close to five years. I never thought I was, I told Encore when I interviewed, I was like, as soon as this company is above 60 people, I'm going to be out. But that happened like two years before. But I think there's like this thing that you look for when you're trying to figure out who to start a company with, where they have to have like very complementary skill sets. And if I'm being truly honest, Sid specifically, he was like the only person that checked all of those boxes for me. And so I knew it was either going to be like, I have to start a company with Sid right now, like this is the moment. And I have to kind of wedge my way in there and really like figure out how to make this happen. Or I just have to do something else. And and that's totally viable too. But I decided it was the right time. And so then, you know, I just was available. And I'd say from our perspective, really the thing that validated this idea specifically, because as, as I said, Rudy and I talked through so many other ideas. Is like, I think Andy was the first person we actually went to with this idea. And, you know, it was rare when we went to people with ideas that they'd get excited and amped up like that that wasn't the usual response the usual response i faced even with some of my best friends was was some level of skepticism questioning which they should right and honestly for a bunch of my ideas it was warranted like questions like is the market big enough or you know is, is this really that company you want to build or is it an interesting or fun side project right so when we went to or when i went to andy with this idea the level of excitement and conviction in our first couple conversations was was just something else. It was like, wow. That's fantastic. It's easy, I think, to kind of get excited about the idea phase. And that's kind of the honeymoon phase, I think, about that, right? I imagine like any startup, especially that has co-founders, like you got to work through some stuff. You got to be clear about roles and responsibilities. You have to formalize things. What were some of those 
maybe more awkward or if there was tension. And I know those are sometimes, you know, the harder things to talk about, but uh, I'm always really curious, especially when, you know, a partnership dynamic takes hold and clearly it's, it's working so well. You know, what were some of the bumps along the way? One thing that, that really helped us, really the first thing we ever collaborated on was this, was this document. I did the first draft and it was basically a vision and values doc. It was the most cliched thing in the world. But I, I found that it really helped us. So just stating up front, here's how we want to work together. We already knew that the skills were aligned. And this is just one other checkbox. So at that point, it was all about, you know, the standard back and forth around bringing on a co-founder, you know, what the equity split's going to look like. And something that helped is we hadn't raised around. There's no one even looped into this idea. So we didn't have to factor in anything else other than, you know, what's it going to take to excite Andy? And really, I think on the whole, it probably took less than like seven days. Seven days. That's very impressive. I, I The vision stuff, at least I, for one, don't consider that cliche. I think it's seminally important. I've led you know multiple teams in, in my past, including the SPI team with Pat, you know, through those exercises of making sure that, you know, the vision isn't only clear, but everyone's really bought into it, aligned to it. And it has even had a certain level of investment in forming it. So at least in our past, Pat and me, you know, we've included the team in the construction of even like the core values, for example, right? So there's a sense of ownership even across the team. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you guys actually did that very early on. As entrepreneurs of all stripes, you know, even if they're solopreneurs, you know, and they're having conversations maybe with their spouse, right? It's like, okay, what is, what are we signing up for here, right? Like, what's the duration of this? How, how did those conversations go among the three of you kind of at that, that early moment around the vision? Well, one thing I think we were all pretty aligned on, certainly there were things that we wanted, but we also knew what we didn't want. So we had all just spent five years going really, really hard at Teachable, very like fast growth. And I think we were all a little bit, at least me and Sid specifically, we were kind of like, man, I just need like a few months, like, like hanging out here. And, and one of the best parts about like having other startup experience is that you get to learn and make improvements, like from role to role to role, you figure out like, okay, this is what I'm going to take with me. This is what I'm going to leave behind. Another thing that we talked about was like team sizes and like multiple levels of management. We wanted to be really efficient with the team growth. We said, Hey, you know what? Instead of growing, let's say three X would be the normal amount. Like what if we just grew, I don't know, two X or one and a half X or whatever it was. A lot of this has all changed. And so, but we started out super aligned on what we wanted. A lot, yeah, has changed in a year. Pat and I have seen some of that up close, which has been thrilling to see. So you had originally thought smaller, maybe slower, at least in you know some of the multiple sense. When things started to go faster, you know, was there any discord with like, hmm, maybe maybe this is getting away from us, or maybe this isn't again aligned to, you know, the original vision and and the size, or did you not necessarily feel that as tension and just kind of run with it? So one thing that made it easy is. You know, a couple of months after we had these conversations, we raised our first pre-seed round. So that was a $1.5 million round led by Notation Capital. Encore, CEO of Teachable, was one of our biggest investors. And one thing that round did is just set us up with a runway. And it meant that we had, you know, 24, 25 months of runway in the bank. And we were prepared for that, that organic speed up without having to worry a lot about, you know, capital efficiency, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing that happened was honestly bringing you guys on board 
as advisors, as our initial customers, bringing on Teachable as a customer, a, a bunch of these other organic customers just really showed up to our door. We didn't do much to attract them. So folks like MakerPad, Ann Lore, David Perel, Tiago Forte, like with these guys, it was like, wow, okay, like there's something happening here. And I don't think we for a moment resisted it. We were just extremely thankful that that anyone, you know, back then even wanted to use their product. I think there was something interesting that happened uh, early in the year. For example, we we raised some money in January. We started full-time in January. Andy came on in February. And in March, everything went down around the world. And there was just a conversation that started taking place online all over Twitter. Where's community? Who's building community? And we just happened to be there already uh, for for quite a few months and and had a product that that was ready to be used. Absolutely. I think that there should always be, I guess, accommodation for luck as a factor in success. You've crossed so many really fantastic milestones. Now you have different challenges. You're hiring a lot right now, full-time into the team. You guys have to think about culture. I don't know to what extent, from a leadership standpoint and a co-founder you know, team here, you guys have thought about you know, just the day-to-day responsibilities changing, if those have changed at all. So how, how has that changed? And what are you guys kind of you know, faced with now to just kind of keep it going? You know, one thing I think, I mean, I've personally been doing a lot more, especially in the last like month, two months, is every few days I'm kind of checking in and I'm like, how am I most likely to mess things up in the next 30 days? Like, what are my blind spots here? Because I think the biggest risk for us right now is like literally any one of us not really leveling up at the same pace as the business, essentially. And I think there's actually a much lower risk of that happening now that we have one kind of like real experience under our belt, the five years of Teachable, I think the the chances go way down. But that's something that I think all of us need to be thinking about all the time right now is like, okay, what are our blind spots? Where can we level up? What feels really hard right now? And we all have our own version of what feels hard right now. But that's, that's just something that I'm personally doing. Yeah, I mean, likewise, I think. So so one thing that's easy between us is division of responsibilities. Like, we're lucky in that our composition is such that you have Andy on growth and marketing, Rudy in design and product, and myself on primarily on product and sort of uh, running the company, right? That aspect is not something we have to figure out as much as, okay, well, you know, let's say, for example, maybe eight months ago, Rudy was doing a bunch of the the design work himself. I was doing a bunch of engineering work. And so back then we had to be like, well, you know, we have all this money, <laughs> we have all these customers. As much as, you know, we love design and code, how do we start building a real team? So once that phase, at least for me personally, was somewhat overcome, it's always on to the next phase. And really for me now, the challenge is shifting to not so much delegating my personal individual responsibilities as much as leveling up the leadership team as leaders. That speaks to me in part through like sometimes this this tension point between being the maker of the thing and then at some point, especially with with a company tech startup in particular, the leadership side. So the maker versus the leader. Do you guys feel that tension yet? Have you guys reached maybe a certain growth point where, yeah, like, you know, I built the thing and I'm still building the thing, but I have to build less. I have to be less the maker and, and have that on as my persona. And I have to kind of take that off because I have to 
hire. I have to invest in culture. I have to do more with management training. Like, it, it, has that presented itself yet at all, or is that maybe still on the horizon? Absolutely. I think one thing that's helped me is to realize that I can still do those things. When you become a manager, everyone tells you, like, you got to scale. Uh, you know, you can't be doing the the actual work. I think that was a mistake. Like, I think there needs to be a transition, first of all. Second, being in the trenches really helps you understand the root of the problems that you can then zoom out and solve from a holistic perspective. So when you're answering support tickets and you notice as you're doing it that four of the last 10 tickets you answered, let's say, mention something in the in an area of the product and that's very closely tied together, you realize, okay, there's something there that needs to be addressed, right? Or when you're pushing code and you realize that you know, your, your builds are taking too long or your code or other, other people's code is leading to, to bugs in certain areas. You realize that there's something there that needs to be done. And so these are all signals that I can then use when I put my management hat back on to address more holistically. That's fascinating. How about Rudy for you, as you increasingly try to help run and lead the business, you know, deal with that tension versus just the maker side? I don't think you just put your hands up and things flow nicely. I think it takes a lot of work to to keep things simple and to keep things flowing. And and part of that is is something that you touched on earlier, which is culture. And so, you know, every hire that we make, we're we're very very let's say detail oriented around the person's impact on the rest of the team, both from a from a quality of of uh, skill, what they're doing, whether it's code or design, and also how they interact, how they communicate, and all these things. So we're very very sort of keen on, on building a, a fantastic culture along with a, a fantastic business and going back to the the visions and the values document a lot of that document was was not so much about let's say what revenue goals do we want to hit or anything like that it was really around what kind of life do we want to lead and and this uh, business being a great vehicle for all of us to achieve something a success in in however we want to measure that as a team so that sort of filters to the top and and the three of us get to talk about these other perspectives that are coming in and how does that shape our thinking and it's been really a, a beautiful process very rewarding and uh and exciting it's a lot of the fun you know from also where i sit and, and where pat sits and how even we think about the future of spi and and very seriously as we've spoken about a number of times putting community at the center of our strategic thinking in our direction, right? So certainly there's there's a wonderful symbiotic relationship just between our two companies. It's the beating heart now of our business model, like on paper. So next year, hopefully will be a better year for all of us and the world will start to get its feet again. As you guys think about the maker side of Circle and what you're making, as you think about macroeconomically, the now I think power and, and increased significance of community in the world, digital community. What's the one thing that you're most excited about for next year? Let's maybe go backwards. Andy, I'll start with you. What are you most excited about for next year? You know, personally, I'm probably most excited about a lot of the product stuff. I'll leave that to to Rudy and Sid to discuss. But I'm personally excited. This is not a sexy answer, but I'm excited about doing some of the in-person marketing stuff again. Like I'm excited about like seeing people out at a conference. I'm like connecting with customers face to face instead of over Zoom. That's not like the massive stuff that's going to move our business in a huge way, but it's what I'm actually most excited about now having just spent, you know, a year in this little room, which is my cat literary center. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I love that answer cuz that's community, right? It's so important to who we are as human beings and as leaders. 
And we've tried to infuse that as much as possible into SPI Pro and was the seminal choice, again, as to why you even chose Circle was because uh, the technology that you guys are building very much born of that same ethos and gives us like the latitude and flexibility from like a feature set standpoint to be able to try to build that, right? So uh, I actually love that, Andy. Uh, I'm glad you emphasized that. Rudy, how about you? Yeah, there's a few things that I'm excited about. I'm excited about what I get to work on every day and that will continue, which is uh, humanizing a user interface. That's a really beautiful problem to have to solve every day and to to go forward and try and make it better and better. And early in the new year, we're about to uh, to launch a whole new user interface, which will be uh, very exciting. And that's something that's coming down the pipes very soon. The other thing that excites me in general is is the business that we've chosen to build is very interesting in the fact that it's very fractal where we're building multiple communities. We're building a, an internal community of our team, which is one community that we have to build and a, and a community culture there that we have to build. We have a community of our customers, our direct customers, which is another community that we're building, which is, which is coming along really nicely. And then we're helping thousands of businesses build their own communities. So it's a big happy family. <laughs> It's great to just, you know, get to, to wake up every day and to really go at that and solve those problems. And, and like Andy said, particularly on my side of the fence, what I do with design is, is trying to bring that human factor in there, even though it's an it's a increasingly digital world. So that's a problem that, that I love solving. All right, Sid, bring us home. What are you excited for next year? So I guess just to piggyback off what Rudy and Andy said, I'm excited about delivering on our roadmap. And that's the thing that builds trust with customers that frankly just builds community. And what I love about that is it's all authentic, right? There's a, the feedback loop is complete. The moment we deliver on a strategic promise that aligns with our customer needs. So that's one thing. And the other thing that actually relates to that is, you know, I'm excited about leveling up our own community and to dog food our own product and to be the best circle customer ourselves. I think the feedback loop that you gain from using your own product and really getting to experience all the pain points firsthand is kind of unparalleled uh, to any other form of feedback. That's wonderful. I'm so grateful, again, that we know you guys and we have a close relationship with you guys and that you guys are helping us, again, realize our vision, a renewed vision, a sharper vision, again, for us on the creator side and what we're trying to do. So to, if I may, like add my thing into the mix for next year, you know, is that Sincerely, as, as we've been discussing and trying to roll out SPI Pro, even though it's sort of been sort of quote unquote beta a little bit this year, is that, you know, from where I sit, community, especially now, is, I think, the new big thing and not in a gimmicky way. And community's always been there. It's just it's so transformed. It's not public social networks like maybe Facebook anymore. It's about really finding and nurturing private conversations, aligning those more strategically to kind of your business model, what you sell or your expertise, right? And as always at, at SPI, you know, we try to genuinely embrace our responsibility of being role models. And we're just so excited to try to pay that forward next year and teach what we have learned and continue to learn by way of community and community building through our channels, through our platform, through our podcasts, you know, stuff like this, you know, Pat on the creator side, me on the business side, and, and hopefully just continue to not only inspire, but yes, yes, inspiration, but beyond just the inspiration piece, actually teach and train the whole world of creators, how important community is and, and how they can harness that opportunity for their own businesses. It's amazing. So that's us. <laughs> awesome. I am so grateful for you as, as always. 
for folks that are listening and still for some reason haven't checked out Circle, please, please do so. You can go to smartpassiveincome.com forward slash circle. Check them out. If you have questions, as always, you, know, you can let Pat or me know through our various social channels or just email into us. Guys, thank you again so very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. Hey, everyone, it's Matt. I really hope that you are enjoying this special podcast episode. Before we move on to our final segments, I want to tell you about a really special webinar that we have coming up. As you can probably tell from past interview, from my interview, the founders of Circle are passionate about community and the work that they've put in to their new technology platform. We believe in them and we believe in them not just for our small business, but for a lot of you and your small businesses as well. We are all convinced that the future for a lot of us online is really rooted not only in the spirit of community, but the actual business mechanics of community. And that's what really important platforms like Circle can do for us creators and online-driven entrepreneurs. This week, Pat will be hosting two free live trainings with our very friends from Circle to go deeper into more of this subject matter, more than even we've been able to get to across this extended special episode of the podcast. The live trainings are called How to Create Your Own Community on Circle, our simple five-part framework based on real-life examples from Circle's most successful communities. And certainly us at SPI will be sprinkled into the mix there a little bit. In these free trainings, Pat and the Teachable team will take you behind the scenes and show you the nuts and the bolts of how community building really works on Circle. And it won't be theoretical. They're going to show dozens of real-life examples so that you get a very vivid, precise view on how other small business owners online are moving into the community space, harnessing Circle, and building very thriving communities, just like we have done with SPI Pro. They'll also talk about a really important topic to keep your community going for the long haul, and that's sustainability for you as a creator, as a community manager, as a community chaperone you know, for the future. How do you keep this thing going so that it stays vibrant, so that it can grow in the way that you want it to grow, and so that you can continue to manage effectively your time and energy? There's so much more. Can't get to it all right now, but I just really want to, again, invite you to join you know, one of these two upcoming free live trainings with Pat and the Circle team. You can join either on Wednesday, February the 10th at 1 p.m. Pacific or Thursday, February the 11th at noon, so 12 p.m. Pacific. You can sign up today by visiting smartpassiveincome.com forward slash webinars. That again is smartpassiveincome.com forward slash webinars and choose the date that works for you. Hope to see you there. Hey everyone, Matt again. We're back for the final leg of this super special episode focused on community and talking about Circle and exploring how we at SPI are deploying far more strategically community and its many different facets, not just the technology point of view, into the SPI business, into the SPI ecosystem, and how we see this being really the start of a, a brand new, very important chapter you know, for the, the SPI brand and business and, and where we want to go for years to come. 
Joining me now, tremendously thrilled to introduce you to the entirety of our community experience team. Our shorthand is the CX team. So joining me now is Jay, Jillian, and Mindy, who's actually our solutions manager, but she supports all facets of the business and plays a, an integral role in just about every piece of software and technology you know that we use. And as such, was instrumental to getting SPI Pro up and running on Circle. And Jillian, I'll maybe throw it to you first because you came onto the team full time uh, actually just after you know the launch of SPI Pro as our as our community manager. So we're thrilled to have you here. What were you thinking about coming in, you know, for the first time to our environment and how we were defining community based on your past experiences, you know, in the realm of community? Ooh, that's juicy. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. You know, coming in, it was it was interesting because I've run large open communities in my history. And those communities were housed on built, like custom built community platforms versus coming into a platform that was specifically designed just for community. So it was, it's been, I joke in the community that it's just a dream because one, we use a platform that was specifically designed to house a community and was created by people who know community, which is refreshing because the last few roles I've been in, the community was built by a company that had a larger scope. And then because it's a niche community, of professionals, of, you know, online entrepreneurs at various phases of business. It has just been so nice. I think, you know, the SBI team did such a good job of the concept of who the community is for, which is so important. We didn't cast the net super, super huge, but not super, super small. It's just that right middle ground. Uh, so it's been, it's been amazing. I love, I love our community. It's, it's, they're so fun to interact with. Excellent. Jay, thank you again for you know, joining this, this crazy endeavor with us. So I, I wanted Jillian to present sort of that context you know, out of the gate here because you know, when I pulled you into this thing, I had a, a working framework for what I thought you know, would be a really attractive community and had done some research and talked to some folks. And so, Jay, I'd love just sort of your insight you know, from those early days reflecting back on that of like trying to, trying to do this right, right, and be different and original and, and very invested in uh, a really authentic community. Yeah, similar to Jillian, when I when I stepped in and I saw Circle for the first time, I just thought finally because I had literally been thinking about this hole in the marketplace for creators for such a long time. Creators were kind of bound to these pre-existing platforms that weren't really built for community, but people were using for community and this was a team coming from Teachable who knew the customer, they knew the pain point, they knew what the product needed to be, and I was just very very excited to be early into being able to use the platform. And to Jillian's point, you, Matt, came with a very clear vision of who this is for and what part of the SPI audience this is really going to be a home for. And one of the things that we did really early on that was important was to think, well, how do we actually get those people in and make sure that we're matching that through an application process? And how do we make that application process also objective? So it's not just us saying, well, we pick you, we pick you, we pick you we're filtering for the right fit and we're doing it in an objective way. So that was a big part of what we did and huge kudos to Mindy on helping make that not an extraordinarily manual process as we did it. And then the other thing that I'll say that I think we did really well, and I've seen future circle communities take some inspiration from is our onboarding, both from how we onboard people with email within the app itself I'm really proud of that experience, which I think is really important when you're bringing people into a space, even a physical space. 
Yeah, it's the classic but very essential advice that first impressions matter a ton. And especially with a new platform, people have to think about, you know, adapting yet another new piece of software and normalizing to that and finding their way. We had those hurdles. And I guess I, I can say candidly, as I've said in the past, you know, that, that was something of a risk for us, right? You know, we, we didn't go with more established, you know, platforms that were out there. At the time when we made the decision, Circle was well inside its first year of life. We had to work through a lot of stuff and, and oftentimes for an early stage tech startup, even though they're very stable and very solid, like there's, there's issues that we got to have to navigate through. And Mindy, you, you played a massive role in that, obviously, you know, from the application process that, that Jay was describing across so many other vectors of, you know, consideration. So if you can remember, what was your first memory or impression, you know, when, you know, it was probably me that came to you and was like, hey, we're going to use this brand new thing. We're going to add a whole new piece to our tech stack, right? And we're going to do this crazy, awesome thing. Yeah, I knew community was coming, you know, a dedicated community. And so a lot of times you and Pat will come and bring me a platform. And <laughs> I think about it like, okay, let me figure out what is this and what are we going to do with it? So it's just really exciting to to get into a product and start kicking around. And the joy... The joy for me is in the projects, like Jay mentioned, is like thinking about, okay, we want to take applications. We want a system where we can immediately tell this person is a good fit or maybe this person isn't ready yet, but then there's always going to be that middle ground. And so basically, I built a scoring system for our questions and that scoring system then sort of identifies that middle group of people we should look at, we should look at manually. And to me, as we look at applications, for example, you know, I'm always thinking about it as, is this person sort of ready for our expectations of this group? Or is this person not quite ready for the expectations of this group? And if they're not, what are some resources that then we can offer, you know, in exchange to help that person get ready for this group? And so I kind of think about all my little components that way. I'll bring us back to the topic of membership management and payments, because that, that is a bit of a hornet's sometimes to, you know, to get right. I want to say for a little bit first, though, just on the ap the application piece, because that was you know a big decision for us. It was a weighty decision for us. We are a broader you know community that tries very hard to be accepting and inclusive of you know entrepreneurs from all walks of life, and and try very hard to you know be there for them. But I think we knew, and and I I believe it has panned out you know very well as, as a thoughtful and constructive decision to to put that application and ultimately you know turn people away. Jillian, I'll throw this to you. Like, what risks are there, and how and how have those risks maybe presented themselves or not by way of like upsetting the community, having people write in and be upset? Like, hey, I didn't get in. Why? Like, have we seen any of that in terms of the the after effects of having an enrollment cycle? We have, we have not a lot, but a few people will write in that we don't accept, and I think there's a couple things that we could discuss here. Uh, one thing is looking at that and then adapting, pivoting. I think a big part of community is being, you know, listening and then pivoting to make the, like you're, you're constantly tweaking There's never like, okay, guys, it's done. The community is set. We can walk away now, you know, so you're always, you're always looking at how to improve. So in SPI Pro, something that I always hear from people, members in it is that they feel safe. 
They feel safe that they can have the conversations, that they can be vulnerable about their business, and they're not worried about who can hear that. So I do think applications are good because you can, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of looky-loo type things, at least in our business, because it's entrepreneurial. Um, a lot of, you know, we rely a lot on sales pitches and things like that. And so we've set up SPI Pro in a way that it's not salesy. The expectation is you're not here to get customers. And I think our application process helps with that a lot. And it's not perfect. I'm sure I'm sure we've rejected people and vice versa, accepted people that maybe weren't totally appropriate. And you see that in the churn. So in a way, if we, you know, quote unquote, reject someone from the community, it's not, it's more that we're saying, hey, you know what, this is not your best investment of time and money right now. And we have a whole sequence that is a very gentle, like, you're still part of our tribe, and we appreciate you. But again, like, this isn't, this isn't right for you right now. And so it's all in the messaging. And I think too, having, I mean, this isn't sorority rush, like, we're not trying to make people cry, because our house is the best, you know. (laughs) which may or may not be an experience I am all too familiar with. But it's not that. It's not a clicky, like, we're the best thing. It's a like, we come from a place of, we want you to love this. Like, we want you to be so happy you joined. And based on some of the information you've given us, you have to trust us when we tell you that this won't fill that void for you. And we want you to, like grow as an entrepreneur as a result of the community. Like if you just show up and you're sort of at a party and having a good time, but you're not taking what you learn from the community back to a business and building it, then we've failed there too. You know, ROI, man, like I want that money that you pay each month to create sort of more in your business, more value, whether that's more revenue or just that you do things more efficiently or whatever. I want you to grow as an entrepreneur as a result of hanging around this group of people. It's matchmaking. We can analogize probably most things in life back to some dating metaphor. We want to be right for them at the right stage. And, you know, hopefully they're right for us at that stage. You know, safety is one of those major pillars to what, you know, what we're trying to foster here. And uh, I think we're doing pretty well. We have turned away, you know, a good number of folks, but, you know, I don't think like as a percentage or as a number like that, that has been very high. So I, I'm proud of what we have done and what all of you have done to, to try to genuinely kind of redirect, you know, folks into other, you know, SPI resources that might be more appropriate, more valuable for them, you know, kind of at that point in their journey. And Jay, to put it back in your court, like this, again, I think reflects on your comment a moment ago around we did have a a very specific user in mind, like a a particular entrepreneur at a particular point in his or her journey that we wanted to be able to invest a lot of time and resources in from our side, because it's a pretty significant, you know, business investment, candidly, you know, from our side. You're right, it's about matchmaking. And we said from day one, when it comes to community, we are focused on connection. And we want to connect members to one another. That's where a lot of the growth and a lot of the ROI Mindy is talking about comes from, from entrepreneurs. You go to a place for a reason. What we're doing with our digital community, SPI Pro, is making that a beacon for entrepreneurs who are serious about their online businesses. And every decision we make is about sending that message. Even pricing is a message in its own way to say, this is an investment. And if you're not in a place in your business where you can make investments like this, then that's a signal that this might not be the right time for you to invest in a community like this. Everything that we do is about creating a space where people will connect with each other, get one another, and feel psychologically safe in the space. 
Absolutely. Uh, I'm thrilled to be investing a ton into this. I'm probably a broken record at this point, you know, for saying so, but I'm so motivated and so bullish, you know, on this space and, and the value that it can provide. And we're only just begun. You know, we, we have plans next year in 2021 to hopefully hire more, you know, amazing people onto our CX team to continue to do, you know, brilliant new things, you know, things that don't exist right now, even, you know, within SPI Pro. So we have to get that match right. We have, we have to declare boundaries, reinforce boundaries uh, in that very cathartic, helpful way. I think it's important to note as well, if I can chime in, if you have an online business and it's all online and it's digital and you tell somebody what you do and they just kind of look at you like, what now? <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it can be a lonely, it can be a lonely place. And a lot of the existing communities are free. They're on big social networks. And it, it's just, you don't get the intimacy that that's provided in a group like this. I mean, I just have to like brag about our topic meetups. You know, we have these, we have these calls and anybody in pro can join and like the financial ones, Matt hosts and people come and we, we look at people's like finances. Like we, it's really the like support that you would never get in say a Facebook group, you know? There was a period of time, Jillian, when I was starting my business that it was so difficult to connect with and explain it to people that when they said, what do you do? I said, I don't. <laughs> That's awesome. That's excellent. You raise a great vector of thought and conversation, Jillian. I feel that even as we talk about the language we use to describe what this community is, the word community itself is going through, I think, a remarkable transformation right now and just the cognitive models that go off in people's heads when they hear the word community, what does that mean? What is it? What is it? What is it not? Right. And I think us in particular, we're, we're in that space and I'm glad to be in that space and, and hopefully contributing to the thought experiment that's happening online right now about like, what does that mean going forward? And then again, for the creators listening, you know, they're probably wrestling with similar questions of like, oh, I have a Facebook group right now. Do I need something like Circle? And we have a Facebook Group. I mean, we SPI has a large active Facebook group, but it just for this specific purpose, this just it wasn't the right platform. I think something important too, and especially for creators, because I, I mean, we all understand it. If you have your own business, every dollar you spend on platforms and software, you know, it adds up. And so Facebook has always been quite convenient. As far as, oh, I can create a group, people are already here, it's free. And that is fine for a lot of communities, especially if you're really bootstrapping and, you know, your your market is thriving on Facebook. Cool. You know, have a Facebook group. But be aware that tomorrow you could log in and Facebook could be like, yeah, we got rid of groups, you know, which is very unlikely. But they the point is they could versus having a platform that is your, you know, branded, dedicated thing one, I think it looks more professional than a Facebook group, but also you have the, the control. You are paying for that service and you don't have to pay thousands of dollars, but investing some money in something and being a customer in that sense, there's that saying that like if a product, you know, if a thing is free, you are the product and that is very much Facebook. So it's just something to consider. And I, and I don't want to push people to go and purchase something if they are not in the position. But I think you should always have an exit plan if you do have a Facebook group. And if you've been around Smart Passive Income for a while, you know, Pat has been saying that, you know, since the podcast started, which is own your platform in terms of that's why you need an email list is because that's a way to communicate directly with your folks. And when you have something like social media, you don't have a way to reach out to those people directly. Whereas like with Circle, 
we have the information for all of these people, you know, and we, we can communicate directly. We can communicate in the circle platform, or we can communicate with those folks via email. And we do a lot of both. And so it's just as new technologies and new types of ways of sort of organizing your business come around the core advice kind of always stays the same, which is make sure you own that direct contact with with your community, with your people. And to stack on top of that, I see the increasing importance of thinking about community and the platforms you use you know, for community, not just as a creative exercise, but as a business strategy, right? Because for us, at least, again, it's not you know a business strategy in the sense that it's all about the money, but it is about like, this is a part of the business model you know, it's more intimate, it's more inward to, you know, the, the business model. People will discover SPI Pro after they have listened to Pat on a podcast, after they have read one of our, our featured blog articles or read one of our guides and books, right? And then at the right point in their journey, we invite them into this experience if they want to and they, and they can apply. So being very, very intentional with like where you place community, like within your business plan and within your business model, I see, and I'm excited about, it's actually probably one of the things I'm most excited about for other creators, you know, it's an avenue of business. Jay, you're a creator yourself. You have podcasts even, you know, on your own, on the side. So yeah, how do you think about maybe the, yeah, that business vector of community going forward? I think it's really important, but I think you need to think about it as part of your business that you are investing in because it's going to become really tempting and feel really easy to use the word community as an add-on benefit to the thing that you're selling and think that that's going to work. And unfortunately, we can't stop this from happening. It's going to happen. A lot of people are going to do that, whether intentionally being a bad actor or not. And I think it's going to start to change the way people think about community and how they think about investing their own time and attention into communities. So if you are a creator and you're thinking about the importance of community, which is incredibly important because you are the lightning rod collecting like-minded people. And you have the ability to connect those people so they think, ah, I found my people. These people get it. You can be that connective tissue for them by turning your audience into a community by creating these peer-to-peer connections. But you need to invest into that because if not, as people have bad experiences with community where the creator or the business is not actually making that space for them and making it a good experience for them, they're going to leave and they're going to go back to the places that are. And so that's what has been so compelling to me about SPI's vision for community, we're investing in the experience for the people. This is not just an add-on benefit to the course business model that we have. This is part of the business model to your point, Matt. And so we're investing in the experience of the people so that we're one of those communities that people come back to and say, if I'm going to put time anywhere, it's going to be here. Yep. And increasingly for the vision of the business, the community is at the center it's, uh, I've described it as the beating heart of the business. It is the thing that over time, you know, it will likely supersede all the other revenue streams, you know, for our business. And I'm proud to say that because, you know, this is something we see as not just, yeah, a, a fad this year, even a fad next year because of, you know, coming out of the pandemic eventually, right? You know, this is, this is a strategic vision and I guess there, therefore a strategic bet that, you know, this is the long haul, you know, this is, this is the next decade. But I do think that a lot of the, market shifts and business dynamics are are all pointing sort of in this direction. And again, it, it aligns up with our, our ethos and our value set. So, you know, we're going to go there and we're going to invest a ton of goodwill, a ton of energy, a ton of resources, you know, into community for us. But for folks listening that, again, still maybe haven't checked out Circle, learn more about the platform and how we use it, go to smartpassiveincome.com forward slash circle. 
And if you haven't maybe studied up on just SPI Pro and what we're doing there and, you know, why it exists and, and the sort of entrepreneur that, you know, again, matchmaking wise, you know, we're, we're really excited to, to serve in, in that way. You can go to smartpassiveincome.com forward slash pro. But I will maybe throw it around the horn quickly for maybe a parting thought from everybody. Jillian, I'll start with you. Sure. I would say anybody who is considering creating a community or expanding in a community, go spend time in a similar community. Like If you want to have a community, you need to spend some time in other communities to see how they run, to see what you like, to see what you don't like, and really look at whoever's running it, how much participation they have, and let that kind of help you determine, is this something I have the time and the spirit for? And to add on to that, my parting thought would be a word of caution and also an opportunity for you potential community creators out there. When you get into the business of creating community, understand that the experience, the product that you're creating is largely out of your hands. If you're not just holding space and making people feel safe and feel like they want to be there, you can't by yourself drive a thriving community. You need to have people there who are enjoying the experience. You need to cultivate that. So To Jillian's point, it is a large time investment to get that going, and you have to come into it with the right intentions or it won't happen. I think I would say if you are taking applications for a community, really approach the process from a sense of kindness because someone is making themselves vulnerable by saying, I would like to join your thing. (laughs) And if they aren't a good fit, remember that that is what they are. They are not the right fit right now. And so it's not that they're bad for your community. It's that they're not the right fit for your community right now. And when you communicate that, be sure to offer something in return. So approach it with the person that way is I don't think you're the right fit right now. And here's something that might help you get to the point where you could be the right fit for us. Love that. Love all of that. For all of you creators out there that are listening to this very special episode, you know, on the Smart Passive Income podcast, you know, thanks for spending the the time for uh, this bonus and, and longer episode. We've had a lot of fun putting this together. If you have questions about community, and maybe this is a, a big part of know, your vision for the year and you have questions, you know, find Pat on social, you can find me on LinkedIn, Matt Gartland, easy to find if you search for it. We'd love to help you. It's going to be a big part of our future. We're excited to hear from you and support you with your community endeavors. So good luck, have fun with this, and we'll talk again soon. All right. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Actually, a very unique episode with three different parts, three different segments, a lot of people. Matt, that was super fun. I, th- I think we got to do this again for a whole bunch of other things because we we definitely go deep for sure in this one. I hope so. Yeah. I think being able to explore really strategic kind of cornerstone elements you know, of online business from different vectors, from different directions, get other voices involved from our team, you know, from the outside, from some of our partners is a, a special opportunity. So uh, it was exciting and thrilling about to put this one together. And I do hope that we do more of these. For sure. And if you want to learn more about Circle, I'd highly recommend this is our affiliate link. So we do get a kickback at no extra cost to you. And again, if you have any questions about Circle, you can let us know smartpassiveincome.com slash circle. Once again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash circle. We also have a really fun training and webinar with the Circle team happening on February 10th and 11th. 
smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars is where you can go to sign up for that. And if you go there, even in the future, after that training is over, then you'll see other trainings that exist around that time whenever you go. So again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. And finally, just again, it's all about connection. And we're really excited to connect with you, whether you are an SPI Pro member or not. If you're interested in applying, again, all the links on the show notes page will have all that available to you there. So just to finish off, Matt, any final thoughts about community and just kind of something for people to think about as we finish up? Yeah, a a few concluding thoughts here that kind of connect together. One is that for me, as I study the internet and Pat talk with you and think about, you know, where we want to be in two to even three years SPI wise, there seems to be a really important distinction forming between audience and community. To me, those terms are not synonymous. When we talk about audience building at large, that is the whole pie. Community is an overlapping circle on top of that, but it is, again, in, at least in my definition and point of view, its own distinct thing. Because as we invite people closer inside, as we try to support and protect a safe space, as we try to potentially you know, foster different forms of you know, tighter, more cohort-based experiences, that to me is community. And that connects in, I guess, with my second point, which is, you know, I fervently believe that the future for us, for certain, you know, is community first, is that, you know, not only is this a, you know, a nice thing to talk about, but truly the members and the subscription revenue, you know, when we talk about just, you know, the inner workings of of a business, you know, this is the new cornerstone or, or beating heart of our business model with great purpose and great intentionality. What I find fascinating, you know, for from a business standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from just the internet, you know, is now like what is possible and, and seeing where, you know, a lot of demand and energy is moving toward seems to be in this space. So for, you know, the creators that are listening, again, I, I so very much hope that, you know, this is at least sparking of curiosity, like, like, please learn more. This could be a pretty big game changer for the future of your business. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more and join us on that training with the Circle Team, you can check that out again. That's happening on February 10th and 11th at smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. And in case you're curious about Pro, if you're like, oh, what does that even look like? What's the application process like? You can check out smartpassiveincome.com slash pro. Matt, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you. Appreciate you for listening. And we wish you all the best. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. This week's episode has come to an end, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, head over right now to Twitter and Facebook and like, share, and get involved. Join us next time. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.